0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Astonishing Legends is supported by Movement Watches, The Great Courses Plus, Squarespace, and Mac Weldon.
1: And we're back. You may have noticed that tonight's show took a little longer to download. That's because, since it's our Halloween special, we decided to post it in stereo rather than mono for the sake of Ryan's wonderful sound design. We generally don't post Astonishing Legends in stereo because it doubles file size, taking longer to download, and using up more space on your already overburdened podcast playback device. But what posting in mono does to Ryan's sound design is a straight-up crime. So tonight, dig out those headphones or play us back through the best system at your disposal. Because Ryan isn't fooling around, and we're coming at you in High Fidelity.
2: (laughs) I don't know if that was completely necessary, but we're (laughs) an independent show and we get to do what we want. Yeah. We want to say thanks to everyone for all the positive feedback on part one of this series.
1: Yes, and please leave us a positive review at iTunes. We need as many as we can get in there to offset the occasional rabid trolls
2: that pop up like a weed in your driveway. We hadn't said how many parts it was going to be last week because sometimes we can't be sure until we start working on the topic. However, we now know that the Mothman series is going to be four. You'll have to brace yourselves, however, because there's going to be a dark week between parts one and two and parts three and four. Part four will be a discussion of our theories on the legend, scientific and supernatural alike. The dark week is there so I can manage Halloween with my son and also properly install and subsequently take down all of the animatronics and fog machines that grace my front porch this time of year. That's going to be fun. But you know what isn't fun? Being chased by the Mothman.
1: Happy Halloween.
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is
1: Forrest Burgess. UFOs do not seem to exist as tangible, manufactured objects. They do not conform to the accepted natural laws of our environment. They seem to be nothing more than transmogrifications tailoring themselves to our ability to understand.
2: John A. Keel, author of The Mothman Prophecies. Join us tonight for the second part of our series on the astonishing legend of the Mothman. All right, before we ramp back up into this thing, a quick thanks to everyone sending in pronunciation information on the local towns in this story, like Point Pleasanté. No, (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's Point Pleasant. Really? But seriously, we have gotten a lot of advice, and I want all the listeners who have written us and tweeted at us and sent us every kind of message you can imagine about that little town across the river, (laughs) I want them to know that there are ongoing conflicts Between how people think the town that is spelled (laughs) G-A-L-L-I-P-O-L-I-S. Very good. Should be pronounced. Yeah. I love words. I love etymology
1: and entomology. Yeah. Bugs and words. Yes. But they differed slightly, which I found fascinating. These are people who live in the area. I don't know for how many generations, because I believe that also makes a difference.
2: Yes, I think it does. And for me, being from the South, I know about the... And this is with all due respect, I lived in North Carolina, but I am going to say the bastardization yeah. of words. It's like you say, I'm not from the deep South, but Cajun is born of Arcadian. Right, right. And in North Carolina, sometimes syllables get dropped. I can't speak for West Virginia, but I'm going to say that that probably happens there too. But you know what? Emily, my wife, had this idea. She was like, just find a local newscast. Well, and I was yeah. Like, well, yeah, yeah <laughs> I think I should do this. So today I did look one up, which did jibe with a lot of the recommendations we got yeah. for the town of Galapolis.
1: Well, we also saw...
2: Gallipolis
1: and Galapolis, Right. Or well, Galliplees. that's
2: what I was saying, Gallipolis. That's what, what I should have said. Yeah. Gallipolis, excuse me. Yeah. Gallipolis, Ohio. And then across the river <laughs> is Gallipolis Ferry. I haven't looked that one up. I wouldn't be surprised it, if be it was different. different. <laughs> yeah. Because you know what yeah. it should be? Gallipolis. If well, it was a restaurant in New Jersey. <laughs> no,
1: it's a guy. I love this film, Gallipoli. <laughs> yeah. Then there's uh, Gallipoli. But this is
2: yeah. Gallapolis. Yes, I yeah. think that's a that's very, very good middle it. of the
1: road here. Way back when we did Nights of the Golden Circle, and we had someone very kindly write into us saying, hey, gentlemen, Prescott is actually... Prescott. That's how she said it. It's, yeah, it's like yeah. press kit,
2: like yeah. a press kit. I'm sorry, kit. I cut you off like I knew, but I, I, it was news to me. I'm the to one telling news. you the story. Yeah, yeah, it was news to me as well. <laughs> sorry.
1: She said, it's called Prescott by the locals. So I asked a good friend of mine I work with named John. He grew up in the Phoenix area all his life, has relatives all around that area. And I asked him, hey, do people call it Prescott? He goes, no, I've never heard anybody say that except for my stepfather, but he's from Alabama and he calls it Prescott.
2: Well, and, you know, and in the South, we have biscuits, not biscots. <laughs> exactly. But it's spelled different.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so my point is that I'm sure there's a lot of people that do call it Prescott. I've heard it on news reports uh, from the area. Basically, I've heard it called Prescott by local people, but I've also heard maybe about even who call it Prescott. So you know what? Go with the one you like.
2: Yeah. yeah. I want to make one other correction. I mistakenly said in the last episode that live broadcasts of I Love Lucy had just passed Pluto in the last decade. <laughs> I couldn't have been more wrong about that. Yeah. In fact, today, Twitter user Chance Rubbage, who follows <laughs> Is us. said a real name? I, I love, well, if they'd had their real name, I would have said it. Okay. I, this I don't even know if it's a man or a woman. But Chance Rubbage who follows us, pointed out that at speed of light, which is also the speed of a radio transmission yes. or a television light, Pluto's only about four hours away. Wow. So I couldn't have been more off base on that. But on the plus side, it did cause me to dig up the news stories that inspired my observation about I Love Lucy going into the far reaches of space. I found two. One was an NPR story that Robert Krolwich did Yeah. before Radiolab, I'm pretty sure. I don't know when Radiolab's first episode was. He's been the science this reporter, was, yeah, yeah, for a long time. This is an older story. And then uh, there's another story. But anyway, we've got both links about the propagation of live television and radio into deep space. Those links are in the show notes, so you guys should check them out. It's fascinating articles. Okay, so last week we introduced you to the story of the Mothman, and we showed you how that story is really so much more than just the Mothman alone. Oh, yeah.
1: He's symbolic for so much other phenomenon.
2: It's like the umbrella. The Mothman's wings are the umbrella (laughs) over a series of events that, like we said, are not too different from Skinwalker. They run the, the gamut.
1: From you could start with a cryptid or cryptozoology because it's a creature. Yes. But with him, he drags everything else with him.
2: Yeah, and it's a creature that doesn't behave like a animal. Earthly animal. Yeah. Yeah, Right. It does not. Because it would be a different thing if in the course of this story you heard of behavior that you could ascribe to other birds or flying creatures. Well, even the But it doesn't behave that way.
1: Even the chupacabra is behaving like a canine, like a dog. It bites, apparently likes a lot of blood, but there's nothing really weirdly paranormal. That's a real true cryptid. It's not really like a dog. It's not really like a coyote or anything else we know. Maybe it has mange, who knows? It has a weird gait. We don't see it smoking cigarettes or wearing (laughs) wearing Banana Republic clothes.
2: Well, yes, and and in some cases, the stories of the big feats. (laughs) uh, They resemble primate behavior. So you tend to think, oh, it's a more earthly creature. However, we have talked many times in the past couple of months about Bigfoot and Sasquatch being capable of something more than earthly travel. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Anyway, we digress already. We're barely getting started here. Okay. We also covered the story of Indrid Cold when he encountered Will Petrie, excuse me, Woody Derenberger. Right, right. We talked about Woody Derenberger's first meeting with Indrid Cold, who was a frighteningly calm, otherworldly humanoid that kind of defied description. And uh, since then, we actually have been graced with another piece of original artwork by yeah. the illustrator, Chad Lewis, who we're very lucky to be partnered up with, for yeah. lack of a better word. He's been doing some amazing work for the show, and we really appreciate it.
1: It's less scary, but it's creepy. I just love him, because just the expression on his face, he nailed, it, I think. Yeah. It's a- I told him to verge on the impossible smile. Yes. But he contained it. So it's just like, hi, I'm very glad to meet you, but maybe a little too glad. Yes. It's like it's also, something odd I'm about
2: it. Talking to you with my mind. Yeah, um, right. We also told you the story about Newell Partridge, otherwise known as Merle, to his friends and his poor dog, Bandit, whom the Mothman absconded with. Oh, possibly. Well, I mean, Bandit went out there and he well, wasn't there he, anymore. He Never you. seen again. Yeah. Marie pointed out Marie, who was a big fan of Snowball, the dog in the <laughs> Delphus Ring case. Oh, you guys
1: were bagging on him earlier. And then mm-hmm. you, 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 well, you
2: know. she, no, she said. <laughs> I got to thinking after these disappearances of yeah. Bandit and the three blue healers on Skinwalker Ranch uh, that maybe Snowball knew what was up.
1: Yeah. He wasn't no, better at don't.
2: self-preservation. He <laughs> could control himself. That's one <laughs> squirrel I don't want to hunt. Snowball might have been smarter than the other dogs. With all due respect to poor Bandit and uh, the blue healers well, Skinwalker.
1: yeah, I think there was a little bit of evidence left behind. Yes. Um, you know, yeah, that, we'll uh, that Terry again. Sherman. No, but, you know, Terry Sherman, that's where he came to that conclusion. They're gone. hmm uh-huh. Now, with and Merle's, uh, just yeah, big muscular German shepherd, it yeah. disappeared. But again, another interesting aspect was the large dog by the side of the road, seen by Linda Scarberry, her boyfriend, and the other couple. Yeah. And when they came back with the sheriff, it was gone.
2: It was dead, too, though. Yeah, when they drove yeah. by, it yeah, was I mean, When you said by the side of the road, I'm just— No, no, he wasn't, wasn't his, walking Yeah, around. he wasn't, like, sitting there waiting for a ride. He well, was maybe uh, it was his prey that had been dropped. You don't know. And then it vanished. And, and then it vanished. it took them, from the time they filed the police report and headed back out to the TNT area yeah. with Deputy Halstead, the dog had disappeared. Right. The dead so, dog. So, very Which may odd. have been abandoned. Anyway, that's the other story we relayed to you. It was about Roger and Linda Scarberry and Stephen Mary Millett, who have fled the TNT area at speeds of up to 100 miles per hour as they were being chased by the Mothman.
1: Who was keeping up with them.
2: Yes, they were, and they were flying in Roger's 57 Chevy. Now it's time to go deeper on this story, and tonight we're going to take a look at some of the other legends surrounding this creature and more of the events surrounding those 13 months in 1966 and 67 that led up to a horrible tragedy in Point Pleasant that is still felt by members of that community today. When you look at the totality of this story, it's easy to see how hysteria can creep into the consciousness of the local residents And people might begin piling on, their minds playing tricks on them, and that's an easy out for people that don't want to believe that something so frightening might really exist. We'll talk more about the possibility of mass hysteria and other explanations, including supernatural ones in Part 4, but for tonight, we wanted to paint a more thorough picture of all the other types of events that were occurring concurrently, including the additional Mothman sightings. Let's take
1: a closer look at Point Pleasant and the Ohio River Valley during the 13 months that followed the first sightings
2: in November 1966. According to John Keel in his book, The Mothman Prophecies, early on November 17th, just two days after the creature chased the four kids out of the TNT area in their car, a music teacher was sound asleep in her bed when she heard her small dog barking and going crazy around 4.45 in the morning. This woman, Mrs. Roy Groves seemed to recall that the moon was out and very bright that night as she looked out her kitchen window and saw a circular object across the road above the trees. It was as big as a house and brightly lit with red and green lights. She told Keel that she was about to wake her husband up when the craft zigzagged away and vanished. Later that same day, a 17-year-old boy reported that a huge bird suddenly dove at his car and followed him for nearly a mile on the road, almost directly in front of her house.
1: The day after that, Paul Yoder and Benjamin Enix, a couple of firemen, were out of the TNT area and said they saw a huge bird with giant red eyes. Keel quotes them as saying, it was definitely a bird, but it was huge. The creature was turning up
2: everywhere in the area. There were so many sightings like that. There were so many people that were seeing it, and they would say, oh, it was a bird, but it's huge. And even the people that said it was a bird had said they'd never seen anything that large in their lives. And other people said, no, this was a man with wings.
1: Well, yeah.
2: These people aren't rubes. And there's a certain amount, and that's something that you mentioned about the movie, and we know that some of you haven't seen the movie yet, and we advised you to wait until we finish the series, but they're not going to confuse a crane (laughs) for <laughs> something that they would yeah. describe as a mothman, especially on a sighting in broad daylight. Right. They know what a crane looks like.
1: I would reckon a city slicker might be confusing it because guess what? They're not out in nature as much as these folks are. They know their surroundings. They know their environment. They know animals. These people hunt and fish. When they say that they saw something that was not a bird, I tend to believe them much more than I would some highfalutin person in a big city who... Uh, Never seen many animals except on TV. It's like the description Linda said. This thing had big, muscular, man like legs, not skinny bird legs. Yeah. And as you said earlier with Merle, these eyes that far away, reflecting that much light and that big around, that's no beady bird eyes. The two birds that you hear the most, yeah, some sandhill
2: crane. And which can grow very, very large. But not that big. But their eyes have feet. That big. No, they still have <laughs> tiny little peas. Eyes. eyes. They do have red on their head, Yeah, but it's well, not reflective.
1: No, and the red is not two red dots. It's, no, it's, it's, a, it's like it's, a skull cap. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, their crown area. So it's yeah. the forehead area of the bird, which is just red. It's not even really that iridescent, right. but it's just one red spot. It's not emitting light, and it wasn't even reflecting light. So, and the other yeah.
2: bird is the barred owl.
1: Yes, which are
2: large, but no, we're talking huge. Barred owls are also nocturnal, as all owls are, I believe. I'm no ornithologist. Well, they're a, yeah, they, you see them in the daytime flying around. You do, but not as much. Daytime. I've seen one here
1: in LA, actually. Oh, which is impressive. odd. Yeah, but it's near Griffith Park, so... That's their territory. But it was weird because it was sitting like at a fast food restaurant sign. He'd just come out of the park, so. Oh, that was uh, one of
2: those plastic ones to scare (laughs) off
1: pigeons. (laughs) Well, you didn't see many pigeons around because I think the owl was eating them. So they are animals, they have their hunting territory. You can hear them uh, hoot when they're uh, divvying up the females. And there's no bird that's man size anywhere. Years ago, I looked up a pterodactyl because I thought like, could those really carry off somebody? And those might get to be about five feet from tip of beak to tail, five or six feet. And I'm totally talking off the top of my head here.
2: Uh, That's when we always get in trouble. Yeah, you know what? I don't care. Wasn't there another (laughs) one? I thought there was some other giant, this is going to come up again in the theories episode. No, um, but there's, and there's larger ones,
1: but there's no giant prehistoric bird that's, let's say, the size of a crocodile. You know, that now No, but There is.
2: There's that famous picture of Dr. What's-His-Name. He's going to uh, come up in the theories episode about the standing in front of the large black bird. It's a reconstruction. But oh, okay. Well, how long the, is it though? Well, it's like a bus. No. Yeah, you've seen that picture. It was in the Guinness Book of World Records. That's I don't it. know. I don't know. All right. Well, so we'll the, come the, back to it.
1: My point is that there's a reason birds are the size they are. Right. And they can only fly so fast. Now, sandhill cranes are great at gliding but they don't really dive and swoop like a peregrine falcon. Right. They're not doing 220 miles an hour down to the car. Right. So that's another thing. I don't believe that they could flap and keep up doing 100 miles an hour. Anyway, but you they swamp the th- gassed it. There you go. Yeah. Okay.
2: Well, <laughs> there's a thing about Mrs. Grose's story though that I looked into just because that's kind of what we do here at the show and when she was talking about the craft that zigzagged away and woke her up at 4:45 in the morning. On that day, November 17th, in West Virginia, the moon wasn't out at 4.45 in the morning. It had rose and set much later that day, coming up a little after noon and setting a little before 10 p.m. And on top of that, it was waxing crescent. Only 28% of it was visible, and it wasn't going to be full until 10 days later, at which point it would have risen at 5 p.m. and set at 8 a.m., which better matches the 4.45 a.m. story for her. So... On the surface, her first reaction might be, well, she must be lying. Maybe she made the whole thing up. Or maybe there's other factors that could be a play here. She obviously could have been dreaming. Maybe it was a dream. She also could have been mistaken about the date. I don't know when Keel talked to her. He doesn't mention that in his book. But maybe she misremembered the date. Or maybe what she thought was the moon was something else. Possibly. The question is, were her senses being manipulated? That seems to happen again and again with these stories. The events appear in a form that you can understand, but I'm completely conjecturing, and as some people get crazy when we do that. I, just, <laughs> I don't necessarily yeah. think, oh, she made the whole thing up. I do think it's possible that it was a dream. Well, how important is the moon?
1: It didn't turn into something else in her no, story. No, it didn't,
2: but she said she specifically remembered that it was out and very bright. Right. So, well, at least according to the Naval Observatory, it was not out at 4.45 a.m. on that day. Yeah. So was it a different day? I don't know. Who knows? Okay.
1: I've often wondered... Unlike the uh, Delphus Ring story, where yes. people say like, well, Ronnie saw the moon, come on. And he's like, well, no, I know what the moon looks like. Yes. It's far away in another direction.
2: And also we've checked then yeah. on the moon in right. that particular story, and we were able to find that it was out, but it was not at the right point in the sky. And, no, you know, but it's so. people telling him what he saw. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting, though, that on the very same day, the 17-year-old reported being chased by a large bird in his car on Route 7, which is pretty much right in front of... Mrs. Grose's house. I and mean, there's no way that boy could have known about her sighting. In fact, she didn't even tell her own family about it until a few weeks later. Was that boy's name Tom Yuri? His name isn't mentioned in the Is book. It?
1: Okay. No. Only because I saw an interview with a guy, he may have been older, I believe, uh, I don't know if he was a shoe salesman then, but he was driving and he describes that. And the only thing that just stuck out is that, and we'll have a link to this documentary, which I believe was, we had mentioned it in the first part. It's pretty well done. That's because yes. I think it was done in conjunction to promote the movie. It has a few
2: factual errors.
1: Well, there's a few things which are not fully explained, which lead to errors and kind of a, an error by omission. So they interviewed this guy and he was a witness and he doesn't look all that old now. Mm-hmm. So he's probably in his late fifties, maybe early sixties, but they showed him a picture of a sandhill crane. He's like, No. No. Yeah. This is all due respect <laughs> to the professor of wildlife at University of West Virginia. Yeah, the guy who's yeah, the San th- Hill. He said, no, no, guy. wrong color, skinny legs. This is not it. Yeah. Yeah. But his name was Tom Urey and he's he's could uh,
2: he's be on him camera. because Keel doesn't mention the name in the in his book. Right. So you'd okay. have to look at his notes or find something else he published about that particular incident to connect gotcha. them. But it could be the same guy.
1: Yeah. Man, some of these Indrid Cold type stories are so strange. I mean, think about it. They can manage to get to our dimension in a flying tin can, but once
2: they step out, they don't even know what time it is. I know, and if he'd had about a hundred bucks on him, he could get a really cool-looking watch from Movement to go with the rest of his outfit. Yeah, Indrid's got a pretty sharp look
1: to him. The shimmering metallic overcoat, the metallic-looking pants and shirt. You know, if I saw him wearing a Movement watch, I would just think that that's what they're wearing in a much hipper and fashion-forward dimension than ours.
2: (laughs) Well, that's the point with movement. You don't have to go through a wormhole flying a lantern to look like a being from an advanced civilization. You can get a stylish, quality timepiece at an affordable price because movement watches start at just $95. They have a wide selection for men
1: and women, and when you want to switch up your look, you can get interchangeable straps to go with whatever you're wearing. But at that price, you really can't afford to get a couple of watches, like some for work and some for when you're really dressed to the nines. They also have chic sunglasses for when you want to go for that men in black, new hotness look. I love the idea behind movement as a company. Two broke college guys wanted to wear classy, stylish watches, but they couldn't afford what was available to them in stores. So they started their own company. They figured they could sell directly to people on the internet and cut out the middleman's retail markup, which means you get all the high-end design and craftsmanship at the best possible price. They've now sold over 500,000 watches in 160 countries. No matter where or when you are in the multiverse, you can look like a million bucks, starting at
2: just 95 bucks. And with free shipping and free returns, it couldn't be easier to step up your watch game and start looking like a sophisticated adult human who knows what time it is. Get 15% off today by going to movementwatches.com slash legends. That's
1: m-v-m-t-watches.com slash legends.
2: Join the movement.
1: Let's get back to the show.
2: Later that same November, Kill reported that five teenagers were out for a drive when they saw a man-sized bird-like creature by a rock quarry. It saw them, and turned, and ran into the woods. He quotes them as saying, no one believed them because they were kids, but they were genuinely scared. In another sighting, an elderly businessman in Point Pleasant became concerned when he heard his dog going crazy outside. Here we go with the dogs again. He went outside and came face to face with what he described to Keel as a seven-foot-tall, gray apparition with flaming eyes. He apparently went into some kind of trance and lost track of time for a little bit. I guess no one can say what happened between him and the creature during those moments, but eventually it flew away. He was so beside himself with shock and fear, and he looked so pale that when he stumbled back inside, his wife thought he was in the throes of a heart attack. Here we go with more sights in my yard. It's flying over my car, people everywhere are reporting this thing. And you know what's interesting to me about it too is the sort of trance phase. A lot of people describe that.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting that you mention the word trance because I was watching one of the other interviews from this documentary where that's exactly described. And it's Marcella Bennett, and she was much younger at the time, but she's on camera in this interview telling about this incident. And what happened is that her and her brother were headed to the TNT area to visit some relatives who kind of lived on the outskirts of the area. And she had her three-year-old daughter with him, and they'd pulled up in the car. And as they're getting out, her brother had noticed something unusual in the sky. Lights or something odd, and he wanted her to look at it. Hey, take a look at this. And she had no interest. She did not want to look at it. As she's making her way to the house with her daughter in her arms, there's some kind of figure that she notices out of the corner of her eye. Peripherally. Yeah, it's some kind of man or creature or something. And at that point, she goes into a trance. She falls down in a paralysis and she realizes that, I've just fallen on my daughter, but I can't help it. I can't move. And this thing is coming up to me. She can sense this thing is approaching, but she can't move. And she realizes that I have to get into the house as quickly as possible. And I believe her brother's already made his way in and opened the door. Well, she is able to regain strength in her legs. She comes out of it. She scoops up her daughter and they run inside as fast as they can. And they slam the doors. Now, the problem is, this thing has not gone away. It's still coming. It's making its way to the porch. And they could hear it plumping, plumping, up the stairs onto the porch. And now, it's peeking inside the house.
2: No, thank
1: so, you. Um, <laughs> well, imagine that. They're freaking out. But they call the authorities, and by the time they came out, this thing had gone, of course. They were terrified. And to this day, she is terrified and, I mean, was traumatized and had to seek medical attention, like counseling after that, because it was so different. It's not being spooked by a deer coming up to eat your flowers in the night. No,
2: and this is what's fascinating about this. First of all, again, we go back to the trance. People are falling into trances. They're losing track of time. The elderly gentleman on his porch, it's like it's got a hypnotic quality well, to it. And Kiel mentions yeah. that too. He apparently had a fascination with hypnotism himself yeah. in his book. But the other thing I want to make clear is in part one, we talked a lot about nocturnal sightings of this thing, but it was seen plenty of times in broad daylight. We're going to discuss a few of those today. Right, In broad daylight, it's a lot harder to mistake something for something else. Well, If the sun is out, you can clearly see what you're looking at. You're also less likely, as a general member of humanity... To be under the influence of something in hey, the middle mean, of the you day. You mean
1: a substance? A substance, okay, yes. Please. This
2: is broad daylight with these people. But my question for you is, not that you would have the answer to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Forest yeah. turns into the Mothman. This thing wants to be seen. It has no fear of being seen. In fact, it's like it's trying to make contact.
1: Yeah, in some cases it does. In some others, it's kind of just doing its thing. Sitting in the tree, swooping down, flying around. And maybe it buzzes somebody. That was the case the five gravediggers in Clendenin cleninden cleninden
2: yeah we put the emphasis sure? on yeah we got an email about it today
1: cleninden cleninden yeah okay then they saw this thing sitting in the trees they all noticed it a large brown man with wings and it swooped over the car not real low, so they all had to hit
2: the ground it's like some wait what, are you talking about the gravediggers again yeah that was I I the they grave... were standing in a hole you said No, they're over not their all car, in the grave. No, <laughs> but you said swooped <laughs> over their car.
1: <laughs> they had a vehicle they arrived to the uh, the cemetery with. They said it, it kind of I'm to make sure we get the story straight. Oh, here. thank you. Okay. Even so though they... we think that story might be made up anyway. <laughs> I'm not sure it's made up.
2: It's uncorroborated. It's un uncro- Well, the except time. for by the West Virginia Chamber of Commerce. It's ahead of it by a day or so. The yeah, first just in uh, time to signing. be the first sighting. Oh, We've already geez. talked about this. Yeah, We're there's no festival that these. they're trying to
1: to beat them out. Yeah this thing flies over and it's not attacking them, it's not doing a trickstery move, but it doesn't really care that it's being seen. Yeah. Much like a lot of people say with UFOs. They claim there's cloaking devices and some kind of zip away, but in a lot of cases, it seems like they don't care that there's a busy highway or that people are noticing them. They're just out kind of doing their thing. Yeah. Same with this. But in this case, though, I would say the stories. Much more lean towards this thing if it is, as people have described, it's
2: looking for some kind of interaction, but it's not doing it very well. Right. And the other thought is that in a method that's similar to Indrid Cold, these encounters do seem to have a psychological, almost telepathic component to them. Yes, an emotional
1: uh, telepathy of sorts, too. yeah, Yeah,
2: exactly. Let's talk a little bit about Connie Carpenter. She. Had one of the most intense sightings because technically it's a trace evidence case, which is, as we all know, anyone who's listened to several episodes of our show, is my favorite kind of UFO case is when it leaves something behind. A close encounter of the second kind, right? There's trace evidence. Yes, by the Heineck, And and I don't know if this qualifies as trace evidence because it's actually a physical ailment, but I think it does. Connie was Mary Heyer's niece. To remind everyone who Mary Heyer was, she was the journalist in Point Pleasant, that wrote for The Messenger, which I think was based in a different town. The uh, Athens yes. Messenger. Yeah. But she had an office in Point Pleasant where she yeah. worked. And Athens, she, Ohio. Uh, probably, excuse me, right? Athens, Ohio. Yes, absolutely. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say West Virginia. I knew that Athens was in Ohio. Oh. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> or, or is it um, Athens? Uh, stop. <laughs> but anyway, John Keel and Mary Heyer became pretty good friends and investigated together during the 13-month period that we're covering in this series. So Connie was Mary Heyer's niece, and on Sunday, November 27th, 1966, Connie was on her way home from church. So this is broad daylight. It was actually about 10.30 in the morning on a Sunday. Not a nighttime sighting, as we're pointing out again. She was driving past what is now known as the Riverside Golf Club in Mason, West Virginia, just 25 minutes north of Point Pleasant along the Ohio River. To give you an idea of the area, this is only 10 miles north of the t area where the Mothman was thought to have possibly lived. The T&T area, which we mentioned before in part one, which was a former military munitions base and storage area for explosive ordnance and...
1: They were manufacturing and storing it there. Yes. And that accounts for the concrete igloos that were there. So there was a lot of... Uh... Really toxic chemicals that have leached into the ground and therefore into the surrounding pond. So again, it's a Superfund site, which means it, yes. it's going to require a lot of cleanup.
2: Yes. And it's also part of the McClintic Wildlife Management Area, which, you know, Superfund sites and wildlife areas always seem to go <laughs> It's going to be, I yeah, mean, some but, area. But yeah. it, the TNT area is nearly exactly halfway between Point Pleasant and Mason, where the golf club is and was that Connie was driving by. So she's driving past this place in broad daylight when she saw a huge gray figure. She couldn't help but slow down and try to figure out what it was. It was over seven feet tall, and it had gigantic glowing red eyes. This is in the daytime. So now we've got glowing red eyes in the daytime, which rules out nocturnal eye shine, which we've all seen and which some people have every time they're photographed. And <laughs>
1: right. We always say this in a description, and it's almost like cliche. It's yeah. like everything's got red glowing eyes. But a lot of that you can say, yeah, it's just how you're looking at it in the nighttime. I saw something in the mirror at night in the bathroom, and it had red glowing eyes. Well, maybe that, you know, whatever it is. It's, well, it's weird that it's there in the first place, but you could say maybe there's some light shining off of it. But more and more, it seems like these eyes are emitting a red or orange glowing light. What is that about? What is it about their place that they're coming from that that's the normal thing? Yeah. So
2: Connie starts slowing her car down because she's trying to figure out what this thing is. She said the eyes were focused on her and it was staring at her. And she felt a hypnotic effect putting her into some kind of trance. She nearly wrecked her car, but somehow, almost unconsciously, continued to slow down. Then it happened. A huge pair of wings unfolded from this creature's back, spreading out at least 10 feet. They were wider than the creature was tall. For Connie, there was no question it was humanoid and not just a bird. Then it defied the laws of physics as it slowly lifted up off the ground without making any kind of sound and pointedly without even flapping those giant wings. And to her terror, it made a beeline for her car. Staring intently at her the entire time, Connie floored it to get away. She was the first of over 100 people that would have encounters during the winter between 1966 to 1967. So I have a question. This
1: kind of backs up, then, a part of her story about what I was saying previously. I knew this story, I knew of Connie's story, and I have a couple of other things to add to it about her experience, But you're saying, though, here, that it defied the laws of physics and slowly lifted up off the ground without making any kind of sound and pointedly, without even flapping its giant wings,
2: Yes, and that's not the only time that's been described.
1: Okay, so here we go. What I've been saying is that this thing looks too big and heavy to fly. Right. Within the laws of aerodynamics as we know it, there's no lift on the wings like a bird. Yeah, you can't just shoot straight up in the air. Unless you're a rocket. Unless
2: you're Batman, yeah. Yeah, or Batman or Superman, exactly. Right,
1: it It unfolds its wings and just kind of floats up into the air, right? Shoots straight up. Yeah. The distinction I'm making is that now we're kind of out of the realm of some kind of normal cryptid biological element here into something even more paranormal. Yes, extremely supernatural.
2: Exactly, so... High strangeness.
1: (laughs) Indeed, very high strangeness. And the fact that it can follow these cars at tremendous speeds. A regular bird
2: usually doesn't fly that fast. Now, I haven't even gotten to the trace evidence part of this case. First of all, Keel had said that the minute he met Connie, he knew her story was real. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One was that he describes her as a very shy, reserved 18 year old. And as we said, his friend Mary Heyer's niece. She wasn't seeking any kind of notoriety. And pointedly, one of the most interesting things about her was that her eyes were swollen and red. Both of them. She had conjunctivitis, otherwise known as pink eye, and it lasted for two weeks after that encounter. Hmm. Here's the thing about conjunctivitis. Kiel reports that there's a version of it called Kleeg conjunctivitis. I looked this up. It's also called actinic, if I'm saying that right, conjunctivitis. And it's brought about by exposure to actinic rays, which are green, blue, violet, ultraviolet rays. So you're saying that light itself can bring this condition on. Exactly. Wikipedia states that, quote, most often the condition is caused by prolonged exposure to Klieg lights, therapeutic lamps, or acetylene torches. Other names for the condition include Klieg conjunctivitis, eye burn, arc flash, welder's conjunctivitis, flash keratoconjunctivitis, actinic ray ophthalmia, X-ray ophthalmia, and ultraviolet ray ophthalmia. Well, there we go. We're starting to make more sense. Now, Wikipedia goes on to point out that this particular form of conjunctivitis is prevalent among the children in the highlands of Ecuador. This supports the hypothesis that prolonged exposure to the sun at altitude in the less dense atmosphere is the main cause of the disease in that area. So the next question is, what is emanating from the Mothman, from those red eyes that's causing Connie and others to contract conjunctivitis. And what about the people that are encountering the UFOs as well? And why doesn't Lois
1: Lane get it when Superman uses his X-ray vision? Well, he never points his eyes right at her. No, because you'd fry him. But the point is that there's something being beamed, it seems like, if this is the cause. Because she wasn't the only one, and there was another young kid who... uh, he had the same thing, and he had one. His right eye was really swollen, and as he told Keel, it never really healed well. Yeah. After that, so it's not just her. It is kind of like people who get really sunburned. Your eyes get puffy. In these cases, it really does seem more like the uh, bacterial conjunctivitis, where it's just weeping and it's just really swollen and, and red. So, what are they seeing that is beaming towards them that is not
2: usually of this realm? Here's the other thing, and this is a part of the reason that I think Spielberg probably drew a lot from this book for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. A lot of people had started to figure out that they could come to this area and go to certain places at certain times, and they would have a good chance of seeing UFOs. That's how much activity yeah. was happening. And in fact, Keel talks about there was one particular point where he had gone to a known site that he and Mary would sometimes go to, and there were a couple of teenagers there, and they had built a bonfire. Yeah. And he had to go up to them and be like, you're going to scare them away. You need to put that out if you want to see anything.
1: <laughs> oh, were they trying? Were they there to try and see yeah, something? Yeah, they were there
2: to try and see something, but yeah. they obviously didn't know the protocol.
1: So, Well, no, not as well as he, but it's mostly
2: within these 13 months. Yes, during this period since the first Mothman sightings and running up to the final point, which we're going to get to at the end of this part. Right.
1: That's also what was winding up everybody in this town, that when John Keel arrived, he said you could sense it.
2: There was a know. palpable feeling of nervousness and angst. And that's actually conveyed very well in the adaptation in the movie. Yeah. There was a feeling everybody knew that something was up, but nobody could figure out what exactly it was. And to a certain extent, it could fairly be described as an ominous feeling. Right. And for
1: those of you who will just write it off as general mass hysteria, one, I don't think it really fits the definition of that. More so, yes, on the sociological scale, not so much on the medical because there's different symptoms. But it's not as though there was a whole feeling of panic around a very specific thing coming into town. People just didn't know what was up because they're hearing these stories from a lot of people, as it's been implied, who were really decent folks, Yeah, not hoaxters, not shucksters or hucksters, you know. These are people that are known in the town. It's a very small town. Everybody knows each other. And as the sheriff said, these four kids were good kids. They've never been in trouble. And they were so visibly shaken. In fact, Linda Scarberry had to have the doctor called because when she got home, she collapsed on the floor and was in just a really bad state. The doctor had to come and give her sedatives. Yeah. She was that bad. And, right, that's yeah.
2: that's not a hoax situation. Could it still be misidentification? Yeah. Could they have had a close encounter with an earthly creature that they just didn't recognize? Yes, but whatever happened, she clearly had PTSD from a really frightening experience. Oh, sure. And a lot of people did, right. including Connie. Connie's husband, Keith Aker, if this is the same
1: Connie, Connie Joe, who I think is, is being talked about. I'm pretty about sure here. it is.
2: There's two Connie's in Keel's book, but one is this Connie, and the other one we're going to talk about a little bit later, who yeah. uh, her and her husband and entire family were visited by a strange man. So, Connie's husband,
1: Keith Aker, that's her married name now is on camera and he's wanted to set the record straight because she is still so freaked out all these many years later that she will not go on camera and talk about it and he describes that night they were dating at the time 50 years it's been 50 years yeah yeah still affects her that much it took me so long
2: i was counting on (laughs) my fingers while you were talking
1: Well, that's why yeah you uh, (laughs) yeah right So he describes going over to her house, Now they're dating at the time, and so he knocks on the door, mother answers the phone and says, well, she's in bed, and she does not want to come out of her room. So he goes to visit her, and it took a long time to get this out of her, for her to even describe what happened. She was that shaken up. So people see weird things. I don't know, like, do people feel this after seeing the chupacabra or even a Bigfoot sighting? I mean, there's people who claim to have seen Bigfoot and it's kind of exciting and sometimes upsetting and sometimes they're freaking out. I've certainly heard stories where people were in their camp and the dog's freaking out. They can hear the knocking and the vocalizations, the weird ones, and they're frightened,
2: but not like this. Yeah. This This is is different. Well, this is, there are multiple cases too of people who said after the encounter in their cars, for example, they had to pull over to the side of the road and they threw up.
1: Does that then go along with some kind of radiation of sorts? That's a really good question. Uh, Now that that, you mentioned it, I hadn't thought
2: about that. That's a very good question. Because,
1: again, if this thing's kind of burning your eyes in a way where you get the conjunctivitis, the form of it, and you have all these other symptoms, like people getting sick, being sick
2: afterwards for days. All right, so getting back to the group sightings, Keel had figured out, and Mary Hire both, I just want to call her Mary. I feel like I know her at this point. That's fine. You know, God rest both their souls, but... um. Keel and Mary had figured out Keel should be Keel, I think. Well I guess it's a John and Mary. There you go. I'm gonna call him Keel. <laughs> Keel <Okay>. and Mary. <laughs> There's a lot of He had figured out yeah. where to go to see UFOs. And in early April, nineteen sixty seven, this is a few months after the Mothman first showed right, up in the right. prior November. There were tons of people out in the TNT area because everybody got word, oh, the Mothman's out there because everyone had heard what happened to Roger and Linda and Steve and Mary.
1: That's another thing I wanted to bring up quickly here. Yeah. This wasn't just isolated stories and people kind of forgot about it or thought like, well, that's weird. No, they brought in the state police, the National Guard were searching for this thing as if it were like a Frankenstein hunt. Yeah. I believe it was described.
2: Yeah. They were going in and out of the buildings. Oh, yeah. himself went in the building and... With the four kids, but they didn't see anything. One of them saw something, and there's so yeah, many stories. We can't right. put them all in an episode. We'd be talking all night. And also, you should just get his book. It's a great read. It's super <laughs> yeah. entertaining. But there was one particular evening in April of 1967, and he and Mary had decided to drive over to Five Mile Creek Road just below Gala Police Ferry. Sounds weird. W- or but is that's it how Gala Police? It. No, it's not Gala. No, it's the, gala. The, the Gala Police are people that come when your party's too big. Is it? Uh, No.
1: (laughs) Or is it gala? Or is it like party please? Gala please? Anyway,
2: so they're at uh, Gala Police Ferry on Five Mile Creek Road, which is just south of there. In fact, they went there two nights in a row. Both nights, John and Mary saw strange balls of light and unidentified flying objects. One of which looked to Keel like it had a window and a being inside, although Mary thought it was just some kind of partition on it. And he, he wrote in his book, this was the only thing about that encounter that the two of them disagreed on.
1: Interesting.
2: And she later signed an affidavit saying that she personally witnessed what happened that night on his behalf to say that she was there. Right. An affidavit. Yeah, because he wanted yeah. proof right. of something that was witnessed by more than just him. Mm-hmm. And he said that the shapes of these crafts precluded them from being stars, and they all exhibited non-ballistic motion, darting in and out and behind of trees in the near distance. And one of them was actually even kind of cube-shaped. Now, at one point, Keel, who had an exceedingly bright spotlight that he carried around to try to communicate with UFOs, picked out the largest object, and he took the spotlight, and he flashed in Morse code at the spotlight the word, DESCEND. (laughs) Apparently, Mary, Mary watched this whole thing, and she freaked out when it started dropping. And not only was it dropping, it was dropping in what they describe as kind of like a falling leaf motion. Yeah. Which Kiel says is a common description of how UFOs descend, which I hadn't heard before. But he seemed to say that it, that, that it was a common thread. And she described it as yeah. sort of looking like it was coming downstairs. And he said it was like a falling leaf. I
1: have heard of the zigzagging pattern, which is unusual, but
2: we don't know how these things fly, you know? Right, so. right. So, so. But it's not, a, it's not a helicopter. Right. Yeah. And here's the interesting thing about this. You know what Kiel woke up with the next day? Conjunctivitis. Cleek's conjunctivitis. So I'm going to posit a completely unsubstantiated theory here that I haven't seen anywhere else, but I'm going to go ahead and put it out there that the conjunctivitis is not a sign that you've seen a UFO. Maybe it's a sign you've been abducted. Now, Forrest, I know you're going to have something to say about this. One, but <laughs> maybe all you... I don't that? know, because okay. I feel like I need somebody else's point of view. I honest, got Because I'm pulling this out of the dark. Okay. Let's say all you can remember is seeing the craft, but the kleek's conjunctivitis is a result of something more happening to you. And this gets into the whole idea of these visitors being maybe some kind of time travelers or something, it lends some weight to whenever somebody does communicate with them. They always seem to be confused about when they are and not just where they are. I I
1: love that phrase. Yeah.
2: When is it? Now They're asking everybody what time it is because their process of travel is imprecise. Maybe they're just us from the future. I mean. Oh, I stop so- it with that. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> no, okay. no, but here's the thing. Yeah. I'm I'm reading A Wrinkle in Time right now to my uh, okay. seven. Okay. No, most- that is a big
1: theory on shadow people. Like they're just us visiting from the. So yeah. everybody who's capable of doing that comes here to strangle people in their bedroom. That's well, the big. Well, shadow people don't strangle
2: people. <laughs> a <laughs> lot just, do. They do. They strangle
1: you. They come at you. They love your fear.
2: They love your fear.
1: Yeah. Keel mentions this, or maybe it's Brad. Uh, you know what? Actually, it's Brad Steiger who mentions this. He's a contemporary of John Keel's and a longtime good friend and uh, just a voluminous writer, just very prolific and a huge name in the field. But he was asked this, is it scaring people? And he said, it's really maybe more about control, that they're able to control you and that there's some kind of thrill there or some kind of energy that they get from that in controlling Fear is a large part of that. And I believe so too, because I've heard so many of these stories where it does seem like there's some kind of joy and pleasure and smiling and grinning out of your sheer terror. And people who've experienced that, that's the only thing they can think of is that just things seem to be really getting off on me being paralyzed with fear. There's two things here I want to say quickly, because you did ask. One, at the end... Of Close Encounters, not to give anything away, but what are the people who are going on this adventure, what are they given? Sunglasses as yeah. they're going aboard the ship, which is very bright. You yeah. think they could just dim the lights a little for the humans, but no. So they give them sunglasses, which Roy Neary, Richard Dreyfus, refuses, because you got to see his eyes. He's the star. That's why that...
2: <laughs> right. Does he say, I can't work like this? Oh, okay. I, no.
1: <laughs> no. Did that happen in the first episode? I, yeah, somebody yeah. did uh, mention that. Two, I'm going to tease a little something here, which pieces are also fitting together on our own heads as we compile information. And we're certainly not as far ahead as some of the legends in this field are. But as we're evolving, we're putting together this story of maybe bits of evidence. And so one is a story that a friend of mine tells about missing time, that he and this friend of his were going to a destination Ultimately, the result was that they both lost about an hour and a half to maybe two hours of time.
2: Unknowingly. They showed Unknowingly. Up, they, they, showed showed up to, they showed up
1: to an appointment, both late, and they are like, what? No, we left like an hour early because we really wanted to be on time for this. Like, no, no, the person you were here to meet has been gone for 45 minutes. So that's kind of the basics. They started to piece together what happened along the way. We were just driving, both of us. And we didn't notice anything. So they're recounting things that they saw. Now, this may not be part of this story. There there was actually two incidents that happened to these people, which again goes back to certain things happening to certain people over and over over again, the same people, but not all throughout your life, not like every other week, because that would just drive you insane, but a few times, which is a lot more than the rest of us. So one interesting thing that this person said, this friend of mine said that he noticed something very strange on the side of the road, that a VW bus uh micro the hippie surfer bus, yeah. flipped over and was on fire. I don't think at the time he said anything to his friend that was sitting next to him. But he's like, geez, I, I hope they're okay. I mean, there seems to be being taken care of. It looks like just a regular car accident except this thing's on fire. Kept driving. They recounted the story later and the person that he was driving with did not see that at all. Not that it didn't happen or that he wasn't sure that he saw it. His conclusion, though, and if you look into, like, communion and things like that, sometimes these things, they're almost like tricks and diversions being planted into our head, things that we see or don't see, or how they're seen. Mm -hmm. It's a diversion from what actually happened, and you'll hear that a lot about abductees.
2: It's like putting a dissolve on an edit. Yeah. You're trying to hide the edit. (laughs) Here's what's i I'm saying this because I used to be an editor. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we used to
1: say, if you can't solve it, dissolve it. If you
2: can't solve it, dissolve it. That's what the aliens are doing. You've hit the nail on the head Well, no. They snatch you away. Yeah. And when they bring you back, they don't want you to feel a jump in your own time. Right. So they set a car on fire on the side of the road. Which is probably when maybe something happened. Like Walter Murch says, yeah. blink. And that blink of an eye, when you look over there at that moment and you see that thing, it covers up the gap in time that you've just lost.
1: Exactly. So that is something important here. And I, wow. you know, I apologize if that Wait, sounds... we tra-
2: trademark that theory. What? <laughs> <laughs> if you can't solve it,
1: dissolve it? No, <laughs> I don't know.
2: Yeah, when it comes to yeah. kidnappings.
1: It's a big idea here that things are being stuck into your head as a way of keeping you from knowing what you really saw or experienced. I like it. So when you hear these stories about people, you have to keep that in mind, too. They did see something. And I don't know if we want to talk about what good old Woody Durenberger saw. I had this thought later, even after we recorded part one. What Woody saw on the road, well, it was very fleet. That's quite a maneuver. Come swooping down. I believe the car that was ahead of it, going very fast, that Woodrow said that uh, the craft was following, it. the one that Indrid Cold was in, Zooms past. I believe that they were working together. They're probably part of the same team. I yeah. don't know. That's just a speculation. But it sounds fun, right? Yeah. Like a Men in Black team. Yeah. The car zooms ahead, and the other one's like, "We're going to talk to this guy here, the sewing machine guy. We're going to talk to him for a little bit." This thing swoops down as a one eighty on the road, goes about six inches off the ground. You should pass your uh, driving test if you can pull that off. That's yeah. a, that's a pretty good maneuver. And this thing sounds like a creaky old car door opening and closing. Yeah. And as Woody said, well, it's like an old miner's lamp. It looked like the chimney end on it, you know, with, where the smoke comes out, and there's a little bit of a flange there and a bulbous middle. It sounds pretty retro, I think, as you said. Now we don't yeah. see rivets on it or anything kind of clunky. And there's no there's no rust around the vents or anything. But my thinking was that maybe this is something more in tune to what Woody can handle seeing. Yes. Okay, so we might revisit a little bit that more in the theories, but I just want to put that out there before I forgot. When you hear these stories, keep in mind that, yes, we believe, I think in a lot of these cases, especially when people are that freaked out, and certainly if you know or have friends or loved ones that have gone through that, and they tell you, no, don't tell me what I saw, I know what I saw. And with all due respect, I don't care if you believe me, but I have to tell this because it's driving me nuts. Or they don't want to talk about it at all.
2: Right. And it's conveniently just strange enough that it makes the story less believable, which may be a component of the whole process as well.
1: We don't know. So as we go along through part two here, just realize that... This is also,
2: by the way, classic confirmation bias. Because (laughs) what we are doing is we are rationalizing bizarre, unprovable stories by saying that they're bizarre and unprovable because... (laughs) they're trying to conceal the fact that they actually happened.
1: There's no way to assail that. Look, what we're not doing here is I'm not really confirming. I'm saying that the only thing that I know is that if you look at a person, and I always say this, if they're that emotionally distraught, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they experienced something very abnormal and very strange that has shaken them to their core. I believe that they're telling the truth as far as what they saw. But is that really, really, really what they saw? Yeah. Is it a manipulation of their mind, of their consciousness, of the, you know, we see with our brains, as uh, my eye doctor I just went to said, like, your eyeballs are basically blobs of brain on a stem, that they just receive the light, it's your brain that makes the picture. So is that being manipulated? So are they really seeing what's out there? Not that you have to doubt certain parts of it that don't make sense to you, of course we do that as humans, but what I'm saying is that some of the details may seem kind of crazier or off, but it may not be the, what's actually
2: out there in the world. Here's the other thing about that, though, in in terms of what you see or don't see and what people believe or don't believe. Again, the conjunctivitis seems like a little thing, but a lot of people are coming down with it. How do you hoax conjunctivitis, right? (laughs) I mean, who does that? You rub 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 a dirty sock in your eye? Yeah, exactly. Say I saw a UFO, then I'm going to go stare at the sun or rub a dirty sock in my eyeball for that added air of authenticity that conjunctivitis gives my story.
1: It's not fun to get. No, it's not.
2: All right, we said this before, and Forrest just said it a minute ago, but it's totally true. The more you explore this kind of stuff, the more you start to see patterns. What the patterns mean, it's hard to say. Are they a condition of the human beings who are relaying them, or are they indicative of the inner workings? of all this phenomena. I really wanted to say phenomenological there. (laughs) Phenomenological. Whatever that word is you made up, I love that Uh word. To this point, John Keel began to recognize repeatable experiments that could be conducted when certain things started happening. And that was what led him to signal that one craft with descend in Morse code that we mentioned earlier. In January of 1968, after all this stuff happened in Point Pleasant, not too long after, a woman from California reached out to John Keel because she'd been having problems with her telephone. And we want to remind our audience that in 1968, telephone was a device that was plugged into a wall. You couldn't walk wherever you wanted or go in a car with it. (laughs) And it was analog. It had a
1: rotary dial. Yes, which, it did. Which made pulses. <laughs>
2: you ever watch MASH and you see radar cranking up the phone? Nobody watches MASH. That, you oh, on reruns? I, well, no. Hey, I watched it a lot, but <laughs> we're old as time, <laughs> you and me. Well, there's <laughs> a lot of our
1: audience that are around our same age. Yeah. It's a low voltage signal, six watts going through a wire. That's how you get the sound to move, yeah. essentially. Digital audio, much different thing. But what you're saying is that it's more receptive to interference, maybe that's direct. Of course, digital stuff is also very sensitive to signal interference.
2: It is, but its own way. Yeah, but it's a different animal, and it's one of the things about EVPs. and, And the same thing with film and cameras. If film, if you're trying to film something unusual or bizarre or paranormal, if you're using real film you're more likely to catch something than a chip is gonna catch something in a digital camera. And I don't know what the reason is. I'm just saying this goes in your book of rules. (laughs) There's something about the way they interact with us is measured more easily in an analog format.
1: It really depends. Now you have spiritual rules yeah, and then you have physical rules that are just beyond our understanding. One interesting thing I always tell you that I had learned about EVP, or electronic voice phenomenon, is basically trying to record ghosts. When you don't really hear anything on the tape, or as you're recording, you go back and you play it and you crank the volume and you can hear maybe whispers. It's things that, that sound like sounds, like words, especially after you've asked a question out loud. So one interesting phenomenon, what I've heard, is that if you're using analog equipment, like an old-fashioned tape recorder, just tape, reel-to-reel, something like that, that's being recorded magnetically, to get an EVP, you need to play some kind of bass sound. Early on, we've talked about this. Uh, yeah. and it has to you have like to give
2: a, it something to work with.
1: Like white noise, right. It yeah. needs putty, the clay, to form these words out of something because it can't do it out of thin air. So you, you have like running water sound playing or you have fan noise or TV static snow a la
2: Poltergeist, yeah. jo Beth Williams. Yes. You have, jo you Beth. Need, she's Hello. following us now on Twitter. Oh, that's so nice. No, wait, that's not yeah. right. We're following her. right. She she did tweet to us. Yeah, she acknowledged, thank you very
1: much. I don't know who you are. Please stop doing this before you have to call the police. (laughs) The point is, is that they need something to form the audio with onto analog tape. Now, what's interesting is that they say you don't need that if you're recording digitally. You don't need that white noise in the background. Why? So I I don't know. Maybe an audio engineer could tell me, but maybe they don't even know. But I'm guessing to me, it it just sounds like it's just the way that electromagnetics, which
2: rules the universe, Scott. So it's 1968. This woman's having all kinds of problems with the phone. She's picking up the phone. It's ringing and she picks it up and she's hearing beeping like Morse code. Ryan? Great. So it's happening enough. It's driving her and her husband crazy. The lights are flickering on and off in the house. So Kiel says to her, Look, I think this is going to happen again, right? Here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to get a flashlight, a pretty bright flashlight, if you can find one. And the next time this happens, I want you to go outside and take a look up in the sky. And she's like, okay, if that's what we need to do. Her husband (laughs) apparently thought she was crazy.
1: That happens a lot. One spouse or the other thinks the other one's crazy. But they they love them and they just let them. Like, okay, if that's going to make you happy, go do it.
2: Right. So she gets the flashlight. She calls John back the very next day. Ecstatic. Ecstatic. She's like, it happened, it happened. You won't believe what happened. And he's like, what, what, what? And she goes, the lights started flickering. We were having uh, some weird issues with the TV. And my husband and I both went outside. And sure enough, there was a bright orange sphere over the house. And she said, I slowly raised the flashlight up. I turned it on and back off three times fast. And she goes, nothing happened. It just sat there. <laughs> yeah. And we waited. And then it flew away. And I was like, oh, well, I guess that didn't work. And so they go back inside the house. (laughs) Her husband, though, at least had seen the orange sphere. Yeah, I would say that's a big
1: big deal of that story.
2: So they come back inside the house. The door closes behind them. They've left the TV on from when they went outside. The thing's gone. And she's like, oh, well, oh, well, I guess it didn't work. (laughs) And then no sooner has the door closed, three incredibly loud beeps came out. Of the television wow. that matched the exact cadence of the three flashes she had done with the craft before it flew away. So they gave him a little goodbye message. I guess. Yeah, Her husband, apparently, according to what she told Keel, that he no longer thought she was crazy. Well,
1: there you go. They got something out of it. Plus, he saw
2: what was above the house. Yeah. And that's a big get. We come back to the trickster element of everything, by the way. Well, it keeps coming up. And I can't help but think that people are seeing, like you said, about Indrid's ship and what Woody saw... People are seeing what works for them because everything is so different. It's so present and it seems so real to them. Yeah. But it's different. And, you know, it's like in Ghostbusters choose a four, you know? (laughs) That's what's clear your (laughs) mind. Yeah. Nobody think of anything.
1: It's the only thing I could think of, the most gentle, just, sweet thing. It yeah. just popped in there. <laughs> exactly. There's a few great quotes, of course, from the Mothman prophecies, which we really haven't gotten into too much because it's entertainment. They did a pretty good job for compressing all the more cool and
2: spooky, sinister elements yeah. of the film yeah, into, and once, to, you know, into a movie. Once you, know. you read the book, and also you listen to this series and you read the book, you can easily recognize the... Amalgamation of the characters and the names, and you, you start to see all the homages that the screenwriter, which I don't know how to pronounce his last name, it's H A T E M, Hatem or Hatem, I think it's Hatem or Richard It'll be Hatem, Hatem yeah, yeah. But um, he did a really amazing job. I mean, he named Lara Linney's character after the Connie that we were just referring to, yeah. And she was a police officer in the movie, but in the real story with Keel, she was a journalist, yeah. But a lot of what happened. Was true, and we're going to come back to more of that. Yeah, in
1: various right, in in certain ways, it was the way it was presented. It had to be woven into a story because, again, we'll probably get some comments probably on iTunes that like, man, that was really hard to follow. I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, it just seemed like a bunch of anecdotes. Well, that's what it is. That is. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, we told you all the chronological things. There's definitely a start point and kind of an end point to this story, but in the middle. It's not like,
2: and that's uh, what we're dealing a bunch with of here thing. Yeah, yeah, it's, and it's really like, just a
1: bunch of anecdotes. And
2: you can go find a million shows, TV shows, I'm sure, probably even other podcasts that are going to talk about the Mothman prophecies or the Mothman story in Point Pleasant, and they're going to tell you a fictionalized, structured, dramatic version of it. And what we're trying to do is find a way to tell you what actually happened and have it still be entertaining. Exactly.
1: Yes, it's all these anecdotes. Because you know what? When they say based on a true story, you know what's really more interesting to me? It's always the true story. Yeah. We're a little more used to hearing all of these Hollywood stories and and screenplays, and I don't care how many explosions or special effects you put into it, It's really the human element that to all the rest of us humans is the most important thing and the thing we pay attention to. Paging Michael Bay. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking about. I don't care how much uh, cramp is going on on the screen. At some point, it's just noise. But there's a few interesting quotes, and one directly relating to what you said that I just read it again today. And I'd seen the movie, but it's been years ago. I got to see it again. One thing that stood out to me is it's when John Klein, who's the John Keel character, Richard Gere, in the yes. movie, he's on the phone, supposedly with Indrid Cold, and he asks him, among other questions, what do you look like? And Indrid Cold's response was, it
2: depends on who's
1: looking. Yeah. So that's pretty interesting to me because what does it say? D- it, that's
2: probably a line that Richard Hatim, if yeah. I'm saying it right, <laughs> wrote yeah. in there based on his impression of the book, but the thing is, it does follow a philosophy that Keel has, that Brad Steiger has, yes. that George Knapp has, that all these guys, that Linda Godfrey has, yeah. just about, there's something going on here that is beyond just, oh, hey, there's a thing that I can touch and hold and I can classify and explain. Yeah. It's more about control of our perception and a reactionary perception. Yeah.
1: And, it's, and again, it's not always to freak us out because if you believe the uh, Woodrow Durenberger story that I really don't want to freak you out, I want to ask you a couple of things. We're just here to be friendly. We'll talk to you again. Yeah. And that alone is going to freak you out. We understand that. But it's kind of a presentation in a manner that is the most appealing possibly to a guy who's never seen anything like this, will never see anything like this again in his life, who's not used to this. But anything, maybe if they showed you what their true nature is, you would just have a complete psychotic meltdown. Scott, do you remember the Tylenol murders of 1982, where seven people were killed in Chicago with cyanide-laced medication?
2: I do remember that. I mean, I was a wee lad then, but I remember it was a big deal. It was one of the main reasons we have all that tamper-proof packaging nowadays.
1: Exactly. Not only that, but new laws were enacted making tampering a federal crime, and also that's when you started to see more security cameras in stores. Another weird side effect is that it sparked a rash of 270 copycat attacks within the first month after the last death was reported. The FDA was able to confirm that at least 36 of those attacks actually involved real tampering, which are basically a form of small-scale terrorism. It also led to reports of pins and needles found in Halloween candy, razor blades and nails found in hot dog packages, Hoaxes, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria.
2: (laughs) You've been watching the lecture series, Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals at The Great Courses Plus, haven't you?
1: I have. Pretty much each one of those lectures in that series deals with a topic we talk about on the show, and certainly hoaxes and mass hysteria come up quite a bit in our research, as you
2: can imagine. They really do. And with over 500 courses and 6,000 lectures on the site, and new ones being added all the time, you're bound to find something you can learn about that's fascinating whether it's Heroes and Legends or Neil deGrasse Tyson on the Inexplicable Universe, to learning how to raise kids who thrive, mastering Tai Chi, or even the meaning of life, yes, that's also a lecture series, The Great Courses Plus has something for everyone. And you can watch them whenever and wherever you are because you can stream these videos
1: on your tablet, laptop, or phone, or stream them on your TV at home. Why not make yourself
2: a smarter and more interesting human being in your spare time? You don't have to take our word for it, because you can check out any of these courses yourself with a month-long, unlimited, free trial membership, just for our listeners. That's right.
1: Start your month-long, unlimited, free trial membership now by signing up at thegreatcoursesplus.com legends. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com
2: legends.
3: And now, back to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burtz.
2: So, just before we started this series, we added a new member to the Astonishing Research Corps, which we mentioned in part one. His name's Michael Heineman. And Michael is a forensic chemist and lifelong resident of Point Pleasant. That's a two-pal sock-em there. (laughs) And he's already been participating a lot in our research, and we got some good information out of him about the local area. There was something very interesting that he told us, and I just wanted to share it with you. He has a friend that has a theory that a lot of the Mothman stuff was amped up by the government as a distraction. Now, this sounds very conspiratorial uh, right. kind of idea. And he himself said he's not necessarily all the way on board with this theory, but there's aspects of this that uh, people need to know because there's some local information here that you're only gonna get on Astonishing Legends, folks. We always try to go a little bit deeper. We always gonna bring you at least one or two facts <laughs> that you haven't heard. Yeah, and 50 million other times this has been covered. Sure. And that fact is that Point Pleasant is home to a facility that is part of the Defense Logistics Agency. I had never heard of that. It had to be explained to me what uh, it was.
1: Every big organization loves, uh, needs, and relies on their logistics. Like if you drive out to Vegas here on the 15. You'll see the Yermo Annex Marine Logistics Base. Yes. Out the middle of nowhere, and there's bumper-to-bumper traffic.
2: This group is apparently charged with storing the materials necessary to national defense in the event of war. In some cases, weapons materials are the things you would need to manufacture weapons, which is kind of works in line with the long tradition of manufacturing weapons in Point Pleasant in the TNT area, but that was for World War II. Sure. And apparently just 15 miles north of Point Pleasant is one of the last two plants in the U.S. that makes ferro-manganese. And we have reason to believe that this material has been stored by the DLA in Point Pleasant. Whatever's really going on, we're not sure. What I can tell you is that Keel makes a reference to this facility in his book, but does not out it as what it is. He said that he was concerned about national defense and telling secrets and that sort of thing. So he kept quiet about it, but he did say that he would like to meet and kick the butt of whatever general okayed putting something like this in a populated area. Right. We're discussing it here because that was a long time ago, and I don't think that at this time it's an integral part of anything that needs to be kept secret. This is... No, I'm sure it's been uh, moved. Yeah, everybody knows what's going on. But what Michael's friend theorized was that it was possible that at this time, in the late 60s, they were moving enriched uranium in and out of there logistically, right. and that was a facility because there's a train depot and trains were coming and going all the time. So the theory goes like this, something happens, whether it's the Mothman or whatever in the area, and the government seizes on the opportunity to amp up the lore around it to distract from the idea that they're moving nuclear fuel in and out of this sleepy little town in West Virginia. Yeah. Now you and I talked about this at dinner tonight before we recorded and you you made a very good point.
1: The idea was that if you're amping up elements of chit chat around going around town to amp up people's fear and cause a distraction Then you're actually basing it on something that actually happened. Right. There has to be a seed. There has to be a seed for them to like, okay, somebody saw some strange
2: Birdman things. Let's throw in some choppers with some colored lights, buzz the town. I think today with drones, you could probably go a lot further. Yeah. But it would be back then pretty hard to fake a flying humanoid with 10 foot wings capable of going (laughs) a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. You could fake UFOs, not that hard. You could have a helicopter with a cable and something hanging down under it with lights. You can fake men in black. You put people in weird makeup. You send that's them the easiest. Just, yeah, yeah, that's the easiest one. Right, but this begs the question. You know, we, this theory is not as crazy. I could see this happening because this well, is misinformation. It's,
1: uh, no, it's Piggly Wiggly. Oh, there's a uh, easy seven, easy four. Remember, there was a an outbreak at uh, Devil's Tower that they had to evacuate everybody. Right. And they were gassing uh, everybody with sleeping gas there to create a diversion. So we have to get everybody out of the outlying areas. What do we do? We fake a radiological or biological contaminant spill. Right. And we got to get everybody out of town. Get them on the trains. Get them out. Get them out of the area so nobody sees anything in the Afraid sky. to breathe. Yeah, I just remember as a kid, like, what's Piggly Wiggly? That looks like a fun place to shop. Yeah, he's <laughs> making the...
2: a reference to the truck that was the undercover. Right. They quickly yeah.
1: manufactured. They get semis out. They cover up these government trucks with these brand names, so it looks like it's just a convoy of goods. Piggly wigglys They
2: had them all That's over North Southern, Carolina. The, I don't yeah. know if they're still there. Uh, I don't, I don't, were, I don't know. I feel like they might be out of business now. Well, we never had any in, in our area,
1: but they're Where grocery are you from? stores. You know, in the tri-state Pacific Northwest Uh, area, including Montana and sometimes uh, Colorado.
3: So
1: uh, so (laughs) never Oregon, though. Yeah, I can definitely see something being staged, even on a somewhat large scale like that, but for a very specific thing. Now, the problem I have, though, with uranium is that it's not semi-loads in a giant caravan that they got to cover up. If they're moving uranium out, I think they would just do it. It's not like a giant earth mover truck that has to come into town. Everybody's like, what the heck is that? Right. You load it up on a semi, you're playing rapid, maybe it's lead lined and uh, and sealed. Maybe you got a couple of Jeeps out in front of it and that's all you need. Or you put it on a train and you have the train come in, it comes in the middle of the night, they offload it. Unless it's a daily thing, like oh, four to five shipments a day, people are going to start wondering why we got to create some kind of a day. Di- well, diversion. it was there.
2: there; was apparently that much traffic, really, according really? to these guys.
1: Yeah. Well, it, I, again, were,
2: you, know. you can do that, but
1: you know what? I've seen government operations. I've been driving on a road trip out the middle of nowhere, and I'll come across a military convoy. Not real fast, but you you pass them. Sure. It's a couple of unmarked type semi trucks followed by some heavy armament we're talking about humvees with the browning 50 cals up top yeah canvas not ready to fire but it's like you don't want to create a diversion up the road and try and stop them you know this is not travolta in a broken arrow here where you and 20 of your henchmen are going to try and stop this thing they're ready to go through you if they have to and i don't know what they're carrying but it's something important Right. And they're just doing it. It's not like there's a circus or they've created a a UFO crash site off the side of the road. So in this case, it's possible. Yeah, I believe that's a scenario that they would try and attempt maybe some kind of a diversionary tactic, but not kind of the way that this is unfolding. Yeah. There's too many weird elements to this.
2: All right. So as we said earlier, sadly, this area has a history of being involved in war, which in itself always seems to draw a certain kind of attention. When you're discussing the paranormal, if you believe in any of this at all. (laughs) (laughs) That should be on a t-shirt Yeah, any other phrases. Before the TNT area was manufacturing munitions for World War II, the Ohio River Valley figured prominently in some much earlier conflicts, including the French and Indian War, and later the Battle of Point Pleasant, which was the only major action in a little war known as Dunmore's War in 1774. Now, Dunmore's war was a fight between the Shawnee and Mingo warriors against the governor of Virginia, John Murray, 4th Earl of Dunmore, or Lord Dunmore. He had negotiated with the Iroquois to take more of the land for the colony all the way to the Ohio River, which was to serve as a border on the Virginia side. The only problem was the land belonged to the Shawnee as well, and they were not part of those negotiations, so they fought against Dunmore's militia. The Battle of Point Pleasant lasted for hours and hours under the brave leadership of a Shawnee chief. He eventually was forced to retreat back across the river to Ohio after the militia was able to flank them. Ultimately, a treaty was negotiated. That chief was a man known uh, as—Forest, I'm going to let you do this. (laughs) I'm not sure I can do this, but Key Tugqua yeah, yeah that's how translates right. to Cornstalk. Yeah, we're going to say Cornstalk from here on out. So Cornstalk was chief of the 20-tribe Northern Confederacy in the Ohio Valley and chief of the Shawnee Nation, and he'd been in that role during Dunmore's war, which as we said ended in a treaty after his warriors were defeated. However, another conflict was bubbling up now three years later in 1777, and Cornstalk was taken hostage after making a diplomatic visit in the interest of peace, possibly voluntarily at Fort Randolph the very fort at the center of Dunmore's War, which is in Point Pleasant at the confluence of the Ohio River and the Kanawha River. He was taken hostage there by the fort commander after he admitted that if other tribes fought in this pending dispute, he would bring his men to fight as well. Apparently, this commander had decided to detain any Shawnee that fell into his hands, and ultimately he took Cornstalk's son, who had stopped by to visit his father, and two other Shawnee warriors hostage as well. Sadly, Cornstalk, his son, and the other two warriors were savagely murdered by the men at the fort after they got word that two soldiers who'd gone out to hunt and fish were ambushed by unknown Indians. The soldiers barged in to his comfortable quarters, and according to the legend, they were startled at how stoic and brave he was as he stood his ground, looking them in the eye, even though they were clearly there to kill him. They unloaded eight muskets into him, and as he lay dying on the floor, he supposedly uttered these words.
1: I was the border man's friend. Many times have I saved him and his people from harm. I never warred with you, but only to protect our wigwams and lands. I refused to join your pale-faced enemies with the redcoats. I came to the fort as your friend, and you murdered me. You have murdered by my side my young son. For this, may the curse of the Great Spirit rest upon this land. May it be blighted by nature. May it even be blighted in its hopes. May the strength of its peoples be paralyzed by the stain of our blood.
2: Well, it would be at this point that we'll remind our listeners that Fort Randolph, where Cornstalk was gunned down, was nearly in the exact spot where Woody Derenberger encountered Indrid Cold on that rainy night in 1966, only eight days shy of exactly 189 years later. Many people believe that curse exists to this day, and we can point to dozens of events in the area attributed to it, one of which will be the last thing we talk about tonight. The rest we will save for our episode on the theories. You cannot ignore Native American
1: legend and origin story with all of this. It's the
2: root of every story we cover that takes place in North America. Every story. And even, and even the Kakowski a... intruder. Yeah. Exactly. And the Laughing Indian. Right. Those are personal stories, but we find them in the personal stories, we find them in the more famous yeah. lore the, in, in astonishing legends that people yeah. have heard. It's always there.
1: One thing that Linda Godfrey mentioned in your interview with her that I thought was fascinating, and I'd read this uh, part in the book, that the sightings of the Beast of Bray Road and different wolfmen of the southern Wisconsin area... When you take those sighting spots on the map and you overlay that with Native American burial grounds, they match up pretty darn close, almost exact. So she's convinced that there's something going on with just the energy there. If you want to say ley lines
2: again, something has got to do with geographical location. And that fort where Cornstalk was killed and where the fort was, and, and in fact, Cornstalk fought for the French in the French and Indian War. All of that stuff all took place, when you talk about ley lines, at the same intersection that Woody saw Indrid Cold. And also, that's quite a curse, man. <laughs>
1: when, you, yeah. when you're, like, in a lot of pain, dying yeah. your last breath, that is uh, well, that's I mean, a heavy one to lay down. <laughs>
2: maybe it's apocryphal. Yeah. I don't know. I, that's, but you know it's, maybe it's a great knows? story. Again, yeah. It's, as we said, we'll talk about it in our episode on the theories, but... A lot of stuff has gone bad. And uh, we're talking about mining disasters, some of the most famous ones in North America. Yeah. And a lot of people have tried to connect it back to that. But it's time to move on to our next story. This is one of my personal favorites out of Keel's book and the area. Let's say a juicy one. Oh, you didn't have to do that. But (laughs) it is Halloween. It's Halloween. (sighs) This story has a few strange details. Keel points out in the Mothman prophecies. That the Mothman seemed to have a predilection for appearing around women more than men. On top of that, he recorded an unusually high number of incidents of that being connected to women's menstrual cycles.
1: There's no other way to say it. Yeah. There's something going on there,
2: though. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating.
1: Well, enough that he started asking it to every woman that he interviewed. I know it sounds kind of improper, especially kind yeah, of back especially in, that in the day. late 60s. Well, yeah, but he said this
2: is important because it's maybe some kind of a clue out of something with very few clues. In March of 1967, a story came to light that took that observation further than he ever imagined. And for me... This story goes into <laughs> Mars Attack's territory. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've seen that movie, folks, and we always talk about it's, movies. It's don't we? funny and delightful and also really disturbing in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. On the night of March fifth, nineteen sixty-seven, a Red Cross Bloodmobile was traveling along the Ohio River towards Huntington, West Virginia, when the driver, Bo Schertzer, noticed a bright white light peering out of the woods off the road and heading straight for the truck that he and the nurse were in, which was fully loaded with a fresh day's supply of donated blood. The nurse yelled, my God, what is it? Beau floored it. Now we all know that a 1967 panel van, because I'm a car guy, and you don't have to be a car guy to know this. I'm not saying that to be condescending. Oh. A 1967 panel is not going to have a lot of get-up-and-go.
1: It's got a large V8, but it's pushing a lot of weight in air. Yeah. So it's, going to take a, it's going to take a while to get up and go. And
2: yeah. this particular one's carrying a lot of blood. Yeah. Especially against a UFO. In my mind's eye, what I'm seeing here when I hear about this scene unfolding is kind of like the steamroller running over the security guard in Austin Powers.
1: <laughs> in slow motion. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: I, I just don't think that I can hear the engine whining now. Yeah. It's probably only got three gears. But uh, nevertheless, they're flying down the road as fast as they can go. Bo, who was driving, was just 21. And he's getting pretty scared. The nurse is scared to death. I, we don't have her name, I don't believe. He rolls down the window and leans out to see if this thing is still above them. And not only is it still there, it's having clearly no difficulty keeping up with yeah. the blood mobile. At this point, he notices a metal arm coming out from this craft and moving its way down towards the side of the bloodmobile. The nurse, like Bo, was in a full-on panic. She screamed, It's trying to get us! Another metal arm appeared on the other side now. This is the Mars attack <laughs> part. It's some kind of claw trying to wrap itself around the bloodmobile. The claw knows all. Yeah. yeah. So it looked like it was going to be all over for them when some other cars appeared in front of them. The oncoming traffic must have startled the craft. It broke off its attack and vanished. Bo and the nurse filed a police report that night immediately, and according to Keel, it was mentioned on the radio, but never picked up by the papers. They probably thought it was too fantastic. And Well, it's, it's a little scary, too. Keel said he just couldn't figure it out. To him, it felt like a misdirect to make people think these things were after blood. He didn't trust it. He said he contacted the Red Cross to ask them about missing blood mobiles, and they told him he was nuts. <laughs> wait, wait.
1: <laughs> well, wait, he's not talking about the one that was being driven trying to get away. He's talking about just in general. Other cases. Yeah, just in general. Is yeah, it anything, but they, like, they
2: apparently did not indulge his... Uh, his no, but,
1: with, but, a, with a puncture hole in the top and it's all been sucked dry.
2: Well, this is the thing, like, and I think you said the other day when I first mentioned this story to you, I said, it's going down with a giant straw. Well, the, <laughs> yeah,
1: that's the movie. <laughs> that's the movie version. Oh, right, yeah, you know. but I mean... Or it's a
2: UFO piloted by vampires. But it's interesting to me what Keel is saying about like, this is, I just, I don't believe this. I feel like this is a misdirect, but why are there so many misdirects? Why are there so many red herrings? What is happening? This is a ridiculous story. Yeah. But you don't
1: know what's herring and what's not. Going back to another quote. Yeah. Uh, from the movie, he goes... From uh, the Mothman Prophecies. Yeah, the Mothman Prophecies, the movie. John Klein, the John Keel character, Richard Gere, he asks the professor, because you always got to go to an expert. He, that's every part of these movies. You got to seek out the expert. Yeah. And uh, so the expert, uh, Alan Bates tells him...
2: We're still waiting to be called for cameo, by the way.
1: In any kind of <laughs> in movie? In any movie, yeah. yeah okay, you just <laughs> Ernest Saves Christmas. We were probably killed off in the yeah. first just for doing this. But he goes and asks him, he said, like, hey, if they're advanced beings, why don't they just tell us what they're up to? What's on their mind? And he has a great response, which is, their intentions aren't human. That stuck with me since the beginning, because it's like, what he's saying is that you're not going to understand it. Right. They have their own reasons, which you may not be able to comprehend. Yeah. So why all these crazy things are happening, or why... He also says,
2: why don't they just explain themselves to us? And he says... "Yeah." Have you ever tried explaining yourself to a cockroach? Yeah. You're more advanced than him. Yeah. I think about that. Every time I walk my dog, I go past about like this time of year anyway, about 10 really busy ant colonies. Yeah. And I, sometimes I think about what is their perception of me? They don't see me coming. If I misstep, I could kill a hundred of them in one step. Yeah. It just comes out of nowhere. They're gone. The colony keeps moving on.
1: It's a natural disaster for them. But we had a a listener write in on Facebook and making that same comment. By the way, go out of my way not
2: to step on them. I just want to make that clear. Oh, that's very nice and Buddhist of you. Yeah.
1: The point is that you and our listener was was making is that our perception of them as just this greater force, this element, that our perception is much different than how they're seeing us. It's like the, uh, the quote saying, uh, you see a car accident on the road, and um, the window washer, who's up several stories, sees it before you do. It doesn't make him God, or it doesn't make him uh, clairvoyant or even advanced. He's just got a better vantage point. So that also ties in with a movie, like, how is this person, this Indrid cold character, able to see these things? How are they able to do this? Are they all just psychic like that? Or do they just have some unique perspective that, again, whatever process that they're going through to be able to do the things they are and be the places they are in the times that they are, they are maybe not themselves in total control of it either. So it's a little loose. It's a little wild. They're not quite sure where they are. They're not sure what time it is locally. And think about this. Time is just a perception, so we can live our lives. So everything doesn't happen at once. If you were living on another planet of a different size, time would be different. If you notice in the Martian, the days are counted differently because those Sol's. are not Earth. Yeah, they're not Earth days. So you, they don't the they don't translate
2: one rotation around the sun. I believe for Mars. Yes, in that
1: he's not syncing up because the planets are different sizes, and they have different rotations schedules around the sun. So whatever is happening. Is not totally definable, and we may not understand what's going on completely. And to us and our ant perspective, it makes very little sense. But to someone in another perspective, they may know what's going on. And there's no
2: hope of us ever understanding it. Not until you get there. As Forrest likes to say, folks, live with the question. (laughs) You may, you have no choice. You know, not to brag or anything, but we've had more than a few people tell us that our show has inspired them to do their own creative projects, which makes us feel good. Probably because they're thinking, if a couple of rambling
1: knuckleheads can put out a show, why can't I start my own blog? And they're right. Whatever you're thinking of
2: doing, from a blog to setting up an online store for your side business, you need a website. And that's where Squarespace comes in. You don't need weeks of training or thousands of dollars to build your own sweet-looking website. Squarespace lets you express yourself or promote your business with a plug-and-play functionality. You'll be on the web in days instead of months with a sleek, modern-looking website that works as soon as you launch. That's because Squarespace does all the heavy lifting for you.
1: All you have to do is pick from their collection of professional-looking templates created by industry-leading designers. Then you just select what functions you want your site to have, and you're on your way. It's that
2: simple. And setting up e-commerce with Squarespace is also a snap. You don't have to worry about fixing and updating all your back-end widgets and stuff either. Squarespace does that for you and can answer all of your questions with their award-winning 24-7 customer support. Next
1: time you're online and you see a cool website that's sleek and modern-looking, I'll bet it's a Squarespace design. See what we mean for yourself by checking them out at squarespace.com. You can
2: register a domain name of your own right there and start your free website or online store trial now. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code LEGENDS to save 10%. Squarespace. Make it beautiful. You seem extra
1: relaxed and comfortable, especially for a recording day. What's going on with you? It's my underwear. Definitely underwear. (laughs) Well, I agree. Good quality socks and underwear can put a spring in your step.
2: So I'm guessing you're talking about your Mack Weldon underwear? Yep. Not only that, I recently got a compliment from my very special lady friend. She said my Mack Weldon underpants gave her teenage thoughts.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) those teenage thoughts were probably about Sean Cassidy, but I see where you're going with this. And not that I want to come along, but I will agree
2: that they're better than anything you've probably worn in the past. You can just tell by the stitching and the cuts that they're better designed and made with better quality fabrics than what you're used to. And not only do they make you feel good throughout the day, but you look good at the end of the day, if you know what I mean. I do,
1: while trying to keep all unsavory images out of my head. But Mac Weldon's not just about your nethers. They also carry the most comfortable socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants
2: you'll ever wear. Give them a try and see what we're talking about. And if you don't like your first pair, you can keep them and they will still refund you. No questions asked. They want you to be comfortable. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code legends. That's MacWeldon.com.
1: Use the promo code legends to receive 20% off your order. Great
2: looking, great performing in the bedroom. We're done here.
3: You're listening to Astonishing Legends.
2: You can't talk about the Mothman prophecies or John Keel more specifically without talking about Men in Black. And we've made some allusions to Men in Black throughout this series so far but now we're going to get down to it because there's a lot of stories. There's a lot of them in the book. The book is really worth reading, The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel. I would recommend, highly recommend it as good reading if you're enjoying this series. But I picked out what was my favorite Men in Black story from the book. As a side note here, was that idea first proffered by Gray
1: Barker in one of his books due to a sighting? Did he... Was he one of the first ones to mention that in print? I know his book came out in 1970, five years earlier than John Keel's. It is
2: my understanding, and I could be wrong on this. We'll have to check into it. But yeah. it's my understanding that Gray had made descriptions of these types of people showing up, but, but really had, not had not classified no, yes, them. Yes, exactly. And that Keel came up with the idea and the phrase, men in black. Gotcha. But that there were encounters with people who were showing up after sightings. Yes. And making requests of... Folks who had been witnesses, eyewitnesses, right? And okay. Barker reported on that. And Barker is a whole other story, and and we'll cover him as we get further into the series. Everything that he said couldn't necessarily be trusted.
1: No. So based on just sincerity,
2: I'm going to give this all to Keel. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. All kinds of strange things are happening around Point Pleasant now in 1967. There was even a woman going around town telling everyone that she was John Keel's secretary. She would show up with a clipboard and she was questioning people. The locals trusted him, so they would always let her in. The only problem was Keel didn't have a secretary. Uh He has no idea who that person was. That's when the men in black started showing up. And this is probably one of the best men in black stories there is. Yeah, January 9th, 1967 less than three months after the first sightings of the Mothman and the UFOs, a man showed up at the Christensen family home. This man was six feet, six inches tall with incredibly broad shoulders, and they estimated that he probably weighed around 300 pounds. He was apparently wearing a fur Russian-style hat and a long black coat that was too thin for the weather. He told them when he came to the door that he was from the missing heirs bureau and there might be an inheritance available (laughs) for the patriarch of the house, Mr. Christensen. He then said, this will only take 40 minutes. He was very precise. Well, I I like that he's defined. It's going to take 40 minutes. They invited him in and they noted that when he took his hat off, his head was strangely large and appeared to be recently shaved. He had a normal looking nose and mouth But he had bulging eyes, like someone with a thyroid condition. And they were far apart. And to make things weirder, only one of them moved. (laughs) The other (laughs) eye was stationary. They speculated that it might be a glass eye. When he took his coat off, there was a strange gold badge on his shirt that Connie, Mr. Christensen's wife, and a different Connie from the one we mentioned in the first part of the show, she saw this badge And the man clearly didn't want them to see it. He had been kind of sloppy about taking his coat off, and as soon as it was revealed, he covered it up with his hand and hid it away. But Connie had time to see that it had a large, what looked like a K on it, with a small X next to it. Keel later conjectured that the large K was actually a Sigma, something that he had heard other contactees say they had seen in visitations that they had had from similar people. The man had no suit jacket under the big coat and was wearing only a short-sleeved shirt. His pants didn't fit properly. When he sat down, the bottoms of them rose up to his calves. He was wearing shoes with thick rubber soles, another common theme with men in black. The strangest thing about him was that there was a long, thick, green wire attached to the inside of his leg. They could see it coming out of his sock and vanishing up under his pant leg. Connie Christensen said that it looked like it may have actually gone into his leg under a large brown spot of some kind. His skin was pale, almost as though he was sick, and he talked funny and clipped phrases, quote, like a computer, unquote, or a recording of some kind. When he first arrived, they had just been about to sit down and have dinner. Naturally, being polite Southern folks, they offered to let him sit down and have the meal with them. He declined telling them he was on a diet. He then added that in about 10 minutes, he would need a glass of water. They also noted that he was wheezing, almost as though he had asthma. He proceeded to ask all kinds of probing, strange questions about Ed, deep background, all the schools he had ever attended. Did he have any scars or birthmarks? And if so, specifically, where were they? He asked if they would be willing to fly anywhere in the United States to collect an inheritance. Connie noted that his face was getting redder and redder as he spoke until he finally asked for that glass of water. And when he got it, he took a giant yellow pill that seemed to stabilize whatever was bothering him. He did tell them his name, but they said it was super plain like Smith or Jones, and they had forgotten it. But they noted that he also told them that his friends called him Tiny The family dog didn't like him when he first got there. It growled and barked at him, but he was able to calm it by speaking to it for a moment. After about 40 minutes, Tiny left. One of their daughters watched out the window of the kitchen as he went outside, and the family noted that his shoes made a squishing sound, like they were wet, as he left. When he got to the street, he signaled with his hand and a black 1963 Cadillac drove up out of the darkness with its lights off. Tiny got into it, and it drove off into the darkness of night, still with no lights on. So, Keel did not report this story to a soul for two years to avoid people being able to hoax it. And this was part of his investigative method. He kept things quiet. He did not share information, including with Gray Barker, or with other folks about the specifics of cases like this, because he didn't want details to creep into hoax stories from other people.
1: Right. You want to keep it separated and isolated to preserve the uh, integrity of the facts.
2: Yeah, exactly. And for him, he felt this was a particularly strong men in black case, because there were five witnesses, the entire family, an intelligent, well-educated family by Kiel's assessment. The day after Tiny left, a woman called the house... And told Connie they'd found the air they were looking for. So there would be no need for them to fly and collect an inheritance. So the visit was over. (laughs) Well, it only took 40 minutes. So the squishy shoes, I have a theory on this guy. He's a reptile. I think he's either a reptile or he's amphibious. (laughs) Oh, I was just joking. He needs the water.
4: Well, yeah. He can't breathe, he's wearing
2: some weird costume, he doesn't know how to act, he right. doesn't know how to talk. There's been so many movie references tonight, but I don't know if you remember in The Fifth Element when the big, ugly, like, warrior thing yeah. tries to appear like a person. It has to concentrate really hard it to look like squishes his, his yeah. head
1: down into—it's a human form, is yeah,
2: it? Yeah, yeah. That's what this feels like. It's like these well, things are, yeah. like, struggling to
1: interact. Even yeah. closer to your Mars Attacks reference, do you remember the scene with Mike Myers? It's the actress Tina Marie, I think, and she looks gorgeous, but she in a, in a 50s way. Yeah. But she's chewing gum. And of course, no spoiler here, but she pops out and turns out to be one of the creepy looking brain aliens. Yes. And she was chewing the gum, they figured out, because there's too much nitrogen in our atmosphere, but she needed the gum yeah. to kind of keep her stabilized. Yeah. This is all the hallmarks of a great sci-fi. Yeah. But if you take him at their word, then yes, he is kind of just hold it together in our realm or whatever state he's got to hold for as long as he can. Wire going up the leg, whatever mechanism he's using to keep it all together in, yeah. in that house. And his ill-fitting kind of, clothes. Yeah. And it's kind of running a ball
2: eyeball out. that doesn't move. Right. Needing water every 10 <laughs> minutes. After the first 10 minutes.
1: Yes, but he knew how long it would take.
2: He knew exactly how long it would take and how long he would be there.
1: Right. Boy, what if you just kept him around (laughs) flopping like a fish out of water?
2: There's another thing about this. It doesn't feel threatening. It's really, really odd. But the other sense that I had, if you're looking at the big picture of all this and making stuff up out of whole cloth, which is what I'm going to do right now. Sure. You're, in a way, if there's any kind of governmental collusion going on, then I would suggest that the men in black are non-human allies that are allowed to make assessments with witnesses because they are trying to determine if these contactees have been in touch with something that is dangerous to humanity, and they represent a benevolent higher intelligence that is trying to protect us from the wrong kinds of encounters. Wow. Thank you. I came up with that about four hours ago.
1: That's pretty good. That's up there with the higher
2: echelon fringy of the fringo. Thank you. That is, do you no, I don't know it, if you it, folks remember where yeah. I started out when we started this show two years ago, but None I was real.
1: really... Look, I'm not uh, bashing any of that because that's right up there with the big ideas of alien human harvest, the soul harvest, the reptilians...
2: Yeah, I don't know. That's do you know what I'm saying? Worth, no, no, there's, and there's, there's, a little bit there's
1: several major theories, or at least the, the people who do this kind of uh, research and write books about it. There's some big ones. Like, you know, there's four races of aliens. You know, some are indifferent. Some are out to not really harm us, but they want our soul energy. You know, there's some that just want to study us, but are very impassionate about it. And there's all these other things. There's, there's aliens out to help us, and they're keeping the other ones at bay. One day we'll, we'll kind of break this down. I think that would be fun, but it's going to take a lot of research to put these in columns, all these ideas. There are some that basically, you know, like the greys, they could be just drones, kind of impartial, non- Worker bees. Exactly. Not fully the kind of aliens from where they're coming, but just kind of these worker bees created to do these menial tasks and take the risks of traveling through different time space dimension, blah, blah, blah. So your theory, though, that it's somehow kind of engineered to kind of gauge what people are seeing, because that's another thing that I think about. Why does
2: it need to know about the scars and birthmarks? That's what I'm asking, because- We're going to say again this is in the movie Men in Black which yeah. is based on some of the stuff that Keel wrote and some Yeah, of the stuff very that loosely. Of course wrote. it's yeah. it's a lot
1: of it's a humorous take on it.
2: Yeah, of course. But like it, so do you have a scar where and w- what does it look like? Of course it didn't talk as eloquently as I'm talking now. Boy, but, I'd love to get a recording of that too. Yeah, yeah but you have a scar and okay and on would that be between your third rib or your fourth rib because yeah. if it's a third rib it's the Andorans. if it's the fourth rib uh <laughs> earth's got about 10 days. Yeah. You know, like wow. that that's the kind yeah. of and i know i've really gone off the deep end well, here but see, like you're we've looking. been doing several yeah. Too many episodes in a row about this kind of stuff. I, I'm, I'm going to get back to some historical things here soon because the old west. I, I've gone into yeah. orbit. Yeah. yeah, I've gone into orbit personally.
1: The first thing I thought about, like, wow, this has got to be the first instance of the Nigerian prince scam. <laughs> you have won twelve million dollars. <laughs> you must, but you must fly <laughs> to Nigeria yeah, to get uh, yes, but, like but you're Andromeda. not going there. Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no flight. There's no prince. You haven't yeah. won anything. But we want your information. Yeah. You know, it's not totally effective. They go around and they threaten people, and people are certainly freaked out. And I've heard lots of cases where they. They show up and they don't say anything. They're just a weird looking guy with a stewy, you know, from the family guy, giant sized football head, weird eyes who just kind of stares at you or looks often to the distance and doesn't really say anything to the ones which are more threatening, like we're going to get you and you better not talk about this. People will think you're crazy. Also, it could bring harm to you and your family, you know, the more direct threats. But then again, people are telling these stories here and there. I'm sure a lot of them are just they see something so weird and that's the end of it. Now, a friend of a friend, this is the first time I've ever heard of it happening to somebody I kind of knew about. He went out, took a road trip way out to, you know, Rachel, Nevada in Area 51, was looking at Roswell and all that good stuff. And when he came back, and I believe this was that Area 51, he even drove up to Freedom Bridge, I think, which is the highest vantage point you can see legally as a civilian. And when he came back, I think a day later, he got a visit from Kind of a government man. Now that I'm thinking about this, I haven't really thought about it much since then, but we were asked, like, what happened? And he's like, well, no, he's got a dark suit. He didn't seem weird. He just seemed like a government agent type. And his message, though, was, we know about you. We saw you out there. Don't ever come back. And we were thinking, like, well, I, we believe this guy, but, like, really? Just a guy parked on a ridge, just binoculars and maybe an old crappy camera? Like, what do they care? They followed this guy? Yeah. What do you mean they know about him? That didn't make sense, but we believe that he was telling the truth about the story. So now that I think about it, yeah, that's a men in black thing. But getting back to the earlier point, what are they doing and why? Is this really the best method to intimidate people? Could you just, you know, use the little flasher device This story to doesn't sound like memory?
2: intimidation to me. No, this it's This is not. information gathering. It
1: is. But, but, but is the there, question is why? Yeah, it's why. And then is there a better way other than going door to door where, you you know, <laughs> this will take 40 minutes unless I explode into reptilian goo? Well,
2: group? and there's, I cut this story from our script, but there was another one with the tiny, tiny, teeny, tiny little guy who was four feet six inches. Oh. Tall came into Mary Hires office at yes, the newspaper. That's right. That's right. And was asking her all kinds of weird questions. Yeah. Telling her that he was a friend of Gray Barker's. Yes. And that Gray Barker would being the other author who was actually proven to have participated in hoaxes. Right. But at the time, Keel and Barker were collaborating a little bit. Yeah. As Keel was working on his book, Barker's book had already come out. Right. There's some people that theorize that Barker was. Pranking keel in some cases, but there. Yeah, are, there he had are... done that. He, 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 and a, I think maybe the same partner had
1: faked a letter to a famous contactee, Georgia Adamski. Mm-hmm. And, uh, say, you know, saying like, we're very pleased with your work here and, and your tales about UFO stuff. And, of course, he took it seriously. They, they got some Department of Defense letterhead or something.
2: Right. Yeah, it's kind of funny, but it's cruel in a way. Yeah, it is cruel. And that, I think, plays to Barker's personality, which, yeah. and, again, we'll get into more later. But Wow, he's
1: another prankster. Another prankster, side, yeah. a
2: human prankster. But there was so many things that happened to kill that were not explainable right by yeah that and, and no no that's the other thing that, that a, in a minute here. The,
1: the really fascinating stuff is like well he's just being pranked but like how do you prank some of the stuff because you can't yeah so
2: that's what's really interesting to me and before we move on to the last section of this episode i did want to say first of all there's a lot of other men in black stories in keel's book so i would say pick that book up if you haven't seen it yet there are yeah. oh, no oh. men in black in the movie from what i can remember I don't think they even touch on it at all. No, not Not really. Not as
1: far as I can remember, but. I was going to mention another great author who's also a contemporary of John Keel is Lauren Coleman. Yes, and he's written a book on Mothman, and he's—I think he kind of builds himself more of as a cryptozoologist. So he really is into the cryptids, and and uh, yes,
2: he's done a famous sketch, which I think we've appropriated for one of the episodes. Yeah. Hopefully, he won't come after us. But <laughs> he seems his sketches right everywhere—the the one yeah. he did, yeah, yeah, yeah—of yeah. Yeah. the Mothman, based on an amalgamation of sightings.
1: Right. So anyway, he's got a great book. Look for that. We'll have a link to that as well.
2: Before we move on from the men in black, though, I did want to mention that on January 13th of 2012, two very strange looking men were caught on tape entering a hotel lobby in Niagara Falls. They had shown up to talk to someone who worked at the hotel who had seen a UFO a few days earlier. He was off that day, but the clerk who was there and the other people that saw these two called the guy in question to let him know what had happened. You can find the video online, we have a link to it in the show notes. Here's the audio from the phone call describing the event. This was January,
0: 2012. There's a couple of really strange looking men that were here and they kind of freaked everybody out and they were asking questions about you. And of course, now I'm getting a little bit nervous and I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, they were, He goes, I don't know how to describe them except for extremely odd-looking. They were the exact same height, they were wearing the exact same clothes, and they had the exact same faces, like they were twins. And he said they were wearing black suits, black trench coats, they were wearing like the old-fashioned Federo hats. They had extremely, extremely pale skin. And he said, they came in and they asked for you. And I said, I'm sorry, he's actually not working today. And it seemed like they didn't believe me. So they started to walk around the hotel and shortly after they went to the tour desk. But he goes, they freaked me out and I really wanted to tell you that there were these weird guys in here looking for you. So of course, now I'm a little bit skeptical and a little bit freaked out all at the same time. So the first thing I do is I run into my security office and I rewound the cameras and sure enough, there, here comes two gentlemen through the front door looking exactly how he described. Then the next day I was talking with my uh, tour guest and one of them um, asked to talk to me. She came in my office the same as my bellman and she said I heard that you heard that there were some men looking for you and she said they asked a few questions about you and they said strange things that I didn't understand and they were talking about governments and conspiracies and none of it made any sense to me but she goes they were very very scary she said they had no eyebrows no eyelashes nothing their hair looked like they had a wig on, like it was attached to their hat, like it wasn't even real. And she said, and the scariest thing, their eyes were so big and so blue that they almost hypnotized me a little bit. And she goes, and you're going to think I'm crazy when I tell you this, but I swear they knew what I was thinking. And she started to cry. And she said one more thing before she left. She said, these men, they didn't blink. Not once did I see them blink.
2: All right, so it's hard to say what happened there. Those guys are on tape. I've seen the tape. You guys can look at it and decide if it's some kind of hoax, but the, the guy in the recording is clearly legit scared. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it falls into line with it. But this is, again, as we said earlier, the men in black thing, not the hardest thing in the world to hoax. It might be, well, no, not even from a special effects standpoint because they always look bad. The makeup's bad. They, they, they look like something's wrong. So you could yeah. pretty much slap something together pretty quickly. That story is, is a little strange. Yeah. It's a, lot a little
1: of harder to do if you're going to include bulging fake eyes that are set too far apart. The easiest yeah. thing for the amateur hoaxers is to find a guy that looks like that the guys in these videos, though, look pretty good. They just look a little off. They even have the hats. So, yeah, yeah you, you can fake that. And, uh, you know, but to what, and I guess you get a little fame out of it. But, you know, but to what point? So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's one of the few times I've seen it actually on tape where somebody's claiming that that is what this is, a couple of men in black. One of my other favorite stories involving, which I did not know involves men in black because it's an addendum to this story, is the Solway Firth astronaut uh, yes, the picture we talked about. Yeah, we talked about it. You can look that up. But apparently that guy, after he took that, got a little visit and a ride, a car ride in England by a couple of men in black, drove out something like 45 minutes and then questioned him a lot and then left him there, which again, I don't know if that's just a cruel prank or like, yeah, we're done. Thank you very much. Oh yeah,
2: you'll find your way back, I'm sure. Well, they seem to be confused about the pleasantries and the yeah. interchanges and what's convenient for humanity. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Except, well, they don't really care.
2: All right, so this part of this episode brings us to an event that took place in Point Pleasant late in 1967 that is considered the bookend to the first sightings of the Mothman earlier in late 1966. It's hard to explain how this all boiled over and became so intrusive in John Keel's life, as he describes in the book, he had a network of people that he calls contactees, which are people that had encountered any kind of thing, whether it was a UFO or Men in Black or the Mothman or whatever. And he kept track of all these people and he kept them separate and he kept their information private because he found, and he talked about this in the book, when he first started doing this kind of research, when he would divulge real names, people would get flooded with... Looky y people coming to their house, all that sort of thing. So he goes out of his way to protect his sources in spite of the fact that he would like to share them. But this network of contactees, they all had his information. They knew how to get in touch with him because they were expected to update him whenever something strange happened to them. And as Forrest said earlier in the show, a lot of times things did happen more than once to people. And sometimes it happened their whole lives, but it might be spread apart by years and years. He would occasionally drop in on them as he was traveling throughout the country, just to see how they were doing, if they had any updates. And sometimes that would be a spontaneous decision that he did, not only because it was his nature, but also in an effort to make it hard for somebody to perpetrate a hoax with him or to catch people off guard, or if anyone was watching him, for them also to be unaware of his plans. So late in 1967, he started to receive a bunch of strange communications through his network that we could describe as being similar to what the Department of Homeland Security calls chatter. He would say it was chatter because it was sort of specific information that came in nonspecific ways from people. He would get phone calls. He would get strange messages. He would show up at a hotel that he had only decided to stay at five or 10 minutes earlier. And when he got to the front desk and checked in, they would say, oh, we have a bunch of messages for you. And the messages were getting stranger and stranger, and they were coming in all kinds of different ways to him. The contactees themselves began to be manipulated in ways that belied some huge pattern of control at work that was beyond his imagination. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier about trying to explain yourself to an insect or having the insect understand the difference between its life and a human being's life. They were trading information with each other that they were then told to share with him, and in some cases, These were people who didn't even know each other. At one point, he had been advised, in this way, that the Pope was going to be assassinated by a man in black, posing as a priest with a black dagger at an airport in the Middle East. He watched with great angst as the Pope lined up a trip to Istanbul. He was relieved, however, when the Pope survived his visit there unscathed, nothing happened. He started to lose his mind. He was trying to figure out why he was getting what seemed like misinformation. Before too long, he was getting information on strange phone calls from his contactees that a great disaster was coming on the Ohio River and that many people would die. He got so rattled that on November 3rd of 1967, he actually wrote the following letter to Mary Heyer. This is from Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies.
1: I have reason to suspect there may soon be a disaster in the Point Pleasant area, which will not be related to the UFO mystery. A plant along the river may either blow up or burn down. Possibly the Navy installation will be the center for such a disaster. A lot of people may be hurt.
2: Don't even hint to anybody anything about this. So he was convinced something was going to happen based on the information that he was receiving. After nearly 45 days, when nothing happened, he figured it was like the story about the Pope. Misinformation, these things were toying with him. It probably slipped out of Mary's mind too, although Mary seemed to think that there was something strange in the air in Point Pleasant, an ominous, foreboding feeling that all the townspeople seemed to be aware of. In addition to all of this, Keel had been led to believe there was going to be a catastrophic blackout on the East Coast at the very moment President Johnson was going to light the White House Christmas tree on december fifteenth, nineteen sixty seven. Keel sat at home with a friend named Joe, someone he had known for a long time. He worked for the Transit Authority. He had candles and flashlights. He was all ready for the power outage because he was convinced that something was going to happen. Joe and John sat and watched the TV as the president lit the tree, and nothing happened. This was December 15, 1967. Joe looked at John. John looked at Joe. Well, I guess that was another case of misinformation. Just after the tree was lit, a breaking news story interrupted the ceremony at the White House. The information in the story was as follows. A bridge spanning the Ohio River from Point Pleasant, West Virginia, to Gallipolis, Ohio, that was loaded with rush hour traffic, collapsed into the Ohio River. This bridge, known as the Silver Bridge, took 31 vehicles into the river with 64 people in them. 44 of them died. Two of them were missing, and nine were injured. The entire event took 60 seconds. The tragedy resonates to this day. Whomever had been trying to get messages to John Keel had told him that this would happen, but not in a way that he had enough information to prevent it. The story might end there, except that Kiel points out that three years later, on November 27, 1970, Pope Paul VI was nearly assassinated by a man in black robes dressed as a priest at the airport in Manila, a Bolivian painter named Benjamin Mendoza, a practitioner of black magic and witchcraft. was carrying a long black knife. Witnesses said he seemed to be in some sort of trance during the attack. Security guards saved the Pope that day, and one of them described the look in the Pope's eyes as one of great import and almost peace and serenity, as though the Pope knew the incident was coming. What had John Keel uncovered? What had he tapped into? (laughs)
1: That's going to wrap it up for tonight. Join us in two weeks for part three when we take a look at a few more of the
2: mysterious incidents that led up to the collapse of the Silver Bridge. We'd like to thank Movement Watches, The Great Courses Plus, Squarespace, and MacWeldon. Weldon.
0: My name is Kirsten LaBrosi. Josh Crosper. My name is Chris Schaus, and I give permission to use my voice on the Astonishing Legends podcast. For the show to use however they see fit galaxy-wide in perpetuity.
2: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel.
1: But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, and... Twitter, Tumblr, Google, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.